Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 53 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name's Trevor Dame, joined as always by the co-host, Matt Feuerstein. Um, Matt, we, um... We had a streak earlier this year of having to start the shows with a lot of bad news. It was mostly bad world news. And for the last few episodes, it's not that the world got dramatically better, but it just didn't get worse in a new way. So we didn't have to open the show with bad news. But unfortunately, we do have to open with some bad news today. And that would be uh, Xavier, one of the uh, – since our last episode, one of the the second ever Ring of Honor world champion uh, passed away between the last episode and this one. And obviously one of the – one of the nice things about doing a wrestling podcast about Ring of Honor as opposed to other subjects is that we haven't had to deal with a lot of wrestler deaths. In fact, I think this is the first Ring of Honor death that I can think of, at least a really prominent one that has happened during our few years now of doing the show. And uh, yeah, I mean, only in his early 40s, it, it, it huge shock. I mean, when I when I saw the news. Yeah, I mean, so we're recording this on August 26, 2020, and if uh, this is you're listening to this in the future and look up that date, there's plenty of really bad news going on in the world, but we, I think we've said all that we can really say about that, yeah. so I think it's fair to, um, at least, maybe not all we can say, but I think for our listeners' sake, we'll stick to wrestling, um, and... Uh, yeah, it's it's true. Um, you know, in some ways it's been very fortunate that like the early ROH crew has not been met with, you know, th- that many, you know, tragic young deaths the way that, you know, those of us who grew up watching wrestling in the 90s, you know, saw so many stars of uh, fall. Mm-hmm. Um, Xavier, Xavier would be the biggest one, right? That would as far as um yeah. I mean, or, Trent Acid died, you know. Yeah. But he was long gone from Ring of Honor. Not that that invalidates it, but that was, you know, he that, and that was a notable indie death too. Because even by that point, I think it, it, the feeling was the indie scene was not going to have as many deaths because there wasn't as much of a. It didn't feel like a you know when you don't have the focus on huge bodies, you don't have as many guys doing steroids, so you have fewer of these people passing away from heart conditions in their 40s but so but, like, in, li- but, but, in, li- but in life someone's gonna die young you know like it's just yeah. whether even if they do everything right it's because some sometimes it happens you know and um so it was bound to happen with somebody it's sucks that it's xavier i um you know we we reviewed his you know a lot of his matches i think you know if you listen to the show you know like it's not like we thought that he was amazing or the the best uh the all <laughs> You know, the all around best. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but he was good. Like he's super talented. You know, I think some of his best stuff happened outside of ROH. Um, but he was really talented in the ring athletically. Um, never, you know, fully found a character that worked. Although I think we both agreed that after he lost the title was some of his most consistent stuff. Um, in terms of how he projected himself. Um, but also when he was champion, he had some really majorly good matches. Um, you know, I think the crowd reaction to him as champion, you know, as that undeserving champion, which is clearly what they wanted that they were going for, you know, um, mm-hmm. it worked, you know, especially when he was up against a baby face that the crowd was really into, specifically Paul London. Um, he had two matches against Paul London that the crowd really ate up. But, you know, even like he's had some matches that no one talks about that were shockingly good. Do you remember the match that he had at Scramble Madness against Jeremy Lopez? 
Um, yeah, yeah, stuff like that. And, um, you know, the, the other match I think people will really talk about, uh, other than the, to me, the Paul London ones that you just mentioned, those two matches, I, I still think those hold up as great matches. I, I'm on the record as saying I think that first Paul London Xavier title match was the first time that the fans in Ring of Honor really cared, like, about someone losing the title and somebody winning it. Like, they, rather than just, oh, let's cheer for the guy we like and cheer for a good match. Like, you could tell they, they really want to see Xavier lose that belt. They really wanted to see Paul London win it, and it just gave it a cool atmosphere that Ring of Honor hadn't really had yet. But I was just going to say, the other match that um, people will think of that we haven't mentioned yet is that big uh, no-DQ crazy match with John Walters at Final Battle 2003, and I believe that John Walters wrote in a remembrance of Xavier how like much that match meant to his career. Like That was really kind of his... He viewed that as one of his showcase matches that kind of opened doors for him, he thought. Yeah, definitely. So. It's still it's still a talked about match, still a well regarded match. Um, and um, yeah, there were there were other good ones. He had a really good match against um, Christopher Daniels, I believe, at Bitter Friends Stiffer Enemies in the summer of two thousand and three. Um, you know, I uh, I think we've we all, I think you and I, if as long as we keep doing this podcast, I think there are only two more Xavier ROH matches that I know of. Mm-hmm. I know he was supposed to come back, but I you know that there could be some later on that I don't remember, but. He comes back for a, a special match with Danielson in early 06, and then he's in a four-way in early 07, replacing somebody who uh, couldn't be in the match. I don't remember whom. I don't remember who. But um, but no, he. I, I said in a tweet that I think he deserved better than he got. I think people don't give him the respect he deserves as a talent. You know, Gabe Sapolsky even mentioned that his uh, ladder match with Loki is one of the matches that ex- inspired the existence of ROH to begin with. And... Um, you know, I think he just, he, you know, I, you know, I know, I obviously I don't know him. It sounds to me like people say he was a good guy. He was definitely a good talent. I think if, you know, if maybe if he wasn't put in a position of, you know, maybe if, if they, if they hadn't gone right to that angle where it's like the guy who's the six month long champion is a guy that we're trying to say doesn't deserve the title. If they didn't go right to that, maybe it would have worked better like a couple years in. Um, you know, when people were ex- more accepting of storylines and stuff in ROH, I don't know. Um, but I, I know that he was better than he gets credit for. I think it seems like now people are giving him the credit that he deserves. You know, it's kind of a, um, it's a bittersweet thing. You know, I'm sure, you know, a lot of artists have ex- any performance experience that where they get a lot of respect after they die, um, that they should have gotten when they were alive, but, you know, I'm glad to see that he's getting some praise lately because he was he was better than his reputation for a long time. And uh, you you touched on this earlier. You know, I, I don't think on this show we want to act like and I, I'm not saying you did. You didn't at all. But you, you mentioned how like, you know. We're not, we weren't the world's biggest Xavier fans. But I think if you look online, there are definitely people that really, you know, hated Xavier or to a lot of people, his legacy is literally just the ring of honor champion that didn't make it, you know, bigger. And then to other people that think he's like this secretly one of the best guys on the indies of this era. And obviously I think if you listen to our shows, you'll see that we came down, you know, in the middle of that wide chasm where he had some really good performances overall. He wasn't, you know, we didn't think he was on the top level, but like you said, you know, he deserved better. I think he was a victim like you were saying of 
he probably got that push too soon and and that kind of push like you said too soon where before Ring of Honor, where some fans were still maybe a little more resistant to pure heels and storylines like that and i think you also made a great point where you were talking about how like he was one of the early guys in Ring of Honor, and we've seen guys like this where after their push is done and it didn't kind of work out that's when they start getting kind of better or more consistent and unfortunately it's kind of like it's almost too late you know and i think there's one other big what if which is he was he had just joined the embassy with prince nana as it was starting up right before he got that shoulder injury and he never returns to ring of Honor other than those two appearances you talk about where i don't know if they i don't know if they ended up just giving jimmy rave xavier's spot but um it would have been interesting to see you know would Xavier have been able to have kind of a second life in Ring of Honor if he had gotten a run as like a spotlight member of the embassy? Because we're seeing, you know, right now with Jimmy Rave, they're getting a lot of, you know, promo time, screen time. You know, they're working out a lot of different bells and whistles around like the entire act. And it might, that, that probably would have been a good spot for Xavier. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I'm not Gabe. I can't answer the question. My hunch is that, at this point, after the title run, Gabe believed in Jimmy Rave a lot more than he believed in Xavier and probably wouldn't have given him a spot quite like that. But, you know, maybe, you know, there's a lot of what-ifs in life. And um, the only thing we know for sure is Xavier was really talented athletically yeah, and had a lot of potential to be a, a really good wrestler and was at times. And another one of those guys, I guess, not to go on too long, but I guess another one of those guys, too, where... He, he felt like he came along at the at the exact wrong time because if he had come along ten years later, Matt, he definitely would have been brought into NXT with like his 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 just his body and he had really good athleticism. Like I was saying online, I think if he comes along a generation later, at the very least, he's having Tony Nese's career, which is you know some might say, well, Tony Nese's career, you know, it's not like he's that notable a name, but it's more than Xavier got. You know, he would have been in. Because I think he's a comparable talent and kind of the same, brings some of the same attributes. And it was just at a time, unfortunately, when WWE, right after, you know, ECW and WCW went out of business, they had a lot of talent they were had access to. And on top of that, you know, there was that was around the time period, I believe, where WWE had that kind of that edict, which is we don't recruit prospects that are under like 6'2 with rare Paul London, Spanky type exceptions. You know, there was this, it was just a bad time to be an undersized indie wrestler where there would be much better times to come for them. Totally agreed. Um, I will say, I will add one thing. I um, had a a weird moment. (laughs) I I was actually at the Joe versus Kobashi show. I might've even mentioned this before on the show during intermission. I was just like, I'd been standing all day. I had a job where I was on my feet all day. I, I was in the standing room section and in like the back area where like the carpet was where everyone was standing during intermission, there was some open space. So I just kind of sat down and I was just looking around and I looked up at the balcony, which is where a lot of wrestlers would watch the show. And I just saw Xavier there and like he and I like locked eyes for a second. And it was just like, I was like, I was almost like starstruck. I was like, Xavier, like, I, I don't know. Like, not that like I got so starstruck by wrestlers, but I was just like, I can't hold eye contact with somebody that I, I watch on DVD. Like that's, that's just, it's just too <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, Xavier was not a part of ROH at that time. He was just there, obviously, you know, to watch the show, but yeah. it was just something I remember the, the moment that Xavier and I locked eyes. 
<laughs> that sounds like the start of a great fan fiction. But um, honestly, uh, uh, the obvious thing to say is, you know, rest in peace, Xavier, and condolences to his family and friends. Uh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Rest in peace. Rest in power. I, um, you know, and, and deepest condolences to everyone who knew him, loved him, was a fan of his. Yes. And uh, another thing you probably are noticing listening to this podcast is it's come out pretty quickly by our standards before the last one. And I mentioned this on Twitter the day of recording, but I might as well mention just in case you don't follow me on Twitter, which is a smart move, which is um, our schedule. If you haven't noticed during COVID, we've had the lockdown has allowed us to have some more free time. So we've been doing these a little more frequently, but real life, you know, unfortunately, maybe when you look at some of the, the infected numbers, the real life is kind of ignoring that and going back to normal for a lot of us. And so I, that means likely after this episode, we are going to go back to more of our, you know, we basically do the show whenever we have time and feel like it, but that likely will mean instead of we've been almost, I think you worked out the other day, we were almost bi-weekly lately, you know, the number of shows we've done the last few months. And we'll probably be going back to our every three to four week schedule just because, you know, real life means less time for hobbies and you know, we have other hobbies beyond this, but jobs, um, <laughs> yeah, jobs too. Yes. Jobs is the big one. So, but yeah. So, you know, the show's not going away and, you know, until we stop like enjoying doing it, you know, until Matt gets wise to realizing how annoying I am, we'll still be doing it. But just to let people know, if you wonder all of a sudden, Hey, I've gotten used to them coming out every couple of weeks. Why are they back to every three or four weeks? So it won't be a shock. It's just, nothing's gone wrong. It's just, Life is back. Nothing's yeah. gone wrong except the world. So, yes. That, that, that's, um, that said, you know, we might just suddenly have a, you know, spur of inspiration or whatever, and maybe we will have a quick turnaround. You know, just we, we, it's just more of a warning. Like it is unlikely that, that this will happen, that we will do the shows as frequently, but that doesn't yeah. mean that it can't happen. Yeah. I mean, we could, something horrible could happen. We could be like six weeks between shows and something incredible could happen and we could be like a week between shows. You know, that's the, that's the fun of being a through the years listener, but exactly. Well, I, um, I got my inspiration from Justin Shapiro when he did the Justin Shapiro show. <laughs> and just just did it whenever he felt like it. That gave me license to do it for my show, and now it's giving us license to do it for ours. Um, uh, but you know, if if you've gotten used to the dopamine drip of so many uh great podcasts that we've been putting out, and you want them a little quicker, there's so, lots of other great podcasts on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network to fill the void that we're going to be leaving a little bit. Although, sadly, one of them no longer will be the Worldcast, which was the podcast about um, some of the old Titans of Wrestling guys did a covering world-class wrestling, because since the last episode, they just ended their run at episode 100. So um, I, I thought that would be the show I would plug this week. You know, that means you have 100 episodes if you want to listen to guys revisiting classic world-class wrestling. You have one, and I think they started after us, which, again, a testament to people that do podcasts much quicker than us. 100 episodes, they've already completed their run of their show. And I guess the one last plug we should mention is uh, that what we talked about last episode with Joe Gagne on our five-star match game episode, The Boys of Summer, has dropped where Matt and I and uh, Justin Shapiro, we were all doing um, a SummerSlam trivia episode on the five-star match game, which is on the Voices of Wrestling podcast network. So if you want to hear more of us, that episode is now out. Um, 
I ruin things. Some laughs are had. I, we won't spoil the victor, but... You did the opposite of ruin things, Trevor. <laughs> and uh, so that's that. So finally we can get to the show itself we're covering tonight, which is Weekend of Thunder Night 2. It took place November 6, 2004 at the Rexplex in Elizabeth, New Jersey, in front of a reported crowd of 1,200 fans. So I mentioned on the last episode that there was some stuff I had about attendance that I was going to save till the end of this double shot, so now I can get to it. Because there was a little bit of interesting stuff between the expectations and what actually happened in terms of attendance. So I'll go first to the PW Torch from weeks and weeks before the show happened. Gabe Sapolsky expects to break previous attendance records for their appearances on November 5th and 6th in Elizabeth, New Jersey and Boston, Massachusetts. We do expect record attendance for the Ring of Honor double shot, and we will definitely surpass the numbers we did for the Muda show in New Jersey and possibly Boston, he says. It will be interesting to see if we can break the 1800 mark we set on March 13th. He said the, anticip- the anticipation for those events are so big, he's concerned that they have stolen the thunder away from the shows this month. I've been kicking myself because we shouldn't have announced Loki as Danielson's partner yet, Sapolsky says. We should have let Danielson make the announcement before his title match versus Samoa Joe on October 2nd and gotten the big pop from the crowd. It also would have put more emphasis on October 2nd. So that was a mistake in promoting that I made. So, I, 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 You know what? I had a hunch when I saw that spot where Danielson announced it to the crowd that they kind of already knew. Like that was, and I have been good to have it confirmed. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so yeah, I mean, this show 1200 is a very good attendance for a ring of art this time, but I'll note there was also a, a very similar quote in the observer, not a direct quote, but Gabe, I mean, clearly talking to Dave saying that they expect they were hoping to maybe break records. And while 1200 was a very good crowd for ring of art this time, it was rare at this point that they would give like big audience expectations for a show. And this did not beat final battle 2003 that drew 1500. This drew according to the observer 1200. It did not break their all time record, which was that 1800 on March 13th for that show. They ran on WrestleMania week. Um, it's interesting that they expect that, that they really seem to think they would. And I know that they said when they put the tickets for Liger on sale, at the show where they announced it during intermission, it was their fastest selling tickets ever until tonight, I believe, which we'll get to later. But so the only thing I can think of is maybe they got really, really great upfront demand. And, and and so they thought, oh, there's going to be this great walk up, but maybe it was one of those things where sometimes when you have a guy like Liger, who's kind of a legend to some, but not a legend to others, you know, to just don't follow Japanese wrestling as much, don't remember the early 90s WCW days, that maybe it was like they thought, well, if the walk-up matches these advanced sales, we're going to break records, and then maybe everyone that really wanted to see Liger just had bought the tickets immediately. Yeah, um, it is surprising to me that they thought it would do so well. I mean, I wasn't a hardcore ROH follower yet, but I was by the time they did the Kobashi shows the year later, and I don't remember anyone acting like this was going to break attendance records. You know, it did end up breaking DVD sales records for a long time because the match got so much hype. But, you know, I, 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 you know, dare I say, you know, Liger was obviously already in America having high-profile matches in WCW throughout the 90s. Um, Kobashi coming was kind of a bigger deal because it was, like, almost, like, n- unprecedented. Um, you know, but not that Liger wasn't a big deal, but... Yeah, I'm surprised that they that they thought that it would be like do better than like say WrestleMania weekend 
with or or Jeff Hardy coming in, you know, fairly fresh off of WWE TV where he was a big star. Like that that's surprising to me. Yeah. Um the going to the torch here um Ring of Honor um let me just see what the torch said. I'm just checking, double checking. Um a lot a fan of the Adam Mignon, I, I probably butchered your name, but he gave a live report to the Pro Wrestling Torch from this show. And he said, I'm not too sure what the attendance was, but I can say that there's no way they broke the record set on the 313 show. It was more along the lines of the crowds they had on 717 and 911 and possibly a few hundred more. I know when uh, Mike Johnson attended the show live, he estimated it a little bit lower, actually, than the Observer number. But we always just use the Observer number so we can be kind of consistent against our, ourselves. But on, still, D- again, on, D- on DVD, it looked like a bigger crowd to me than the last two Netflix shows by a lot. But I, you know, I, I'm, you know, that's just DVD. Maybe that's just how they laid out the people. But definitely looked packed to me. And again, 1200 still very good crowd by this standard, still one of the t- bigger crowds they've had. And in fact, uh, speaking to the torch after the show, Ring of Honor booker and promoter Gabe Sapolsky was pleased with the attendance on the November 5th and 6th events in Jersey and Boston. We were very happy, he tells the torch. Our goal is to break even on the live shows, and we accomplished that with the combined attendance of Boston and New Jersey. It was a very successful weekend. He says, um, Sapolsky says the door is open for Liger to return to Ring of Honor in the future. I talked to people in the New Japan office, and they said Liger had nothing but good things to say about his experience in Ring of Honor, and that he really enjoyed it and was impressed with everything from the fans to the locker room atmosphere. He says that they are interested in bringing in other wrestlers from Japan in the future. So we would not see Liger again, I believe, in Ring of Honor during the Gabe era, but we definitely would see wrestlers from Japan. I mean, and it would go sometimes not so good for them. In fact, the new Japan wrestlers would go not so good for them, at least during Gabe's run. But then we'd see uh, it go much more successfully for them, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. I'd say for the most part, their relationship with Japanese companies, especially after this, was a huge, huge boost to the company. Huge. And uh, I always take some of this stuff with a grain of salt because we heard a lot during the uh, the first couple of years of the company in the newsletters. They would always say Ring of Honor's goal is to draw a certain number of people to break even before they even start selling DVDs, and that's where they make the profit. And they would always give the number of like – it would always vary a little bit, but it would always be like between 400 and 500. But they hadn't really said that since the big sale where they had to reveal, oh, like Silken's lost a lot of money. Gabe – I mean uh, Gabe hadn't lost money, but – uh. Rob lost a lot of money. Carrie lost a lot of money on this. But this is the first time since then they kind of did the old we broke even line. But you can believe it here. I mean, and Davey, you know, Meltzer got told the same thing, obviously, because he wrote in The Observer. The weekend was a big success in that between the gate and huge merchandise sales for Liger stuff, they broke even. And that's before DVD sales. I think the one thing, though, I was thinking about that is interesting about this is – if they, you know, if their goal of Ring of Honor was to break even before DVD sales, and they only broke even on a shows that did a weekend where you drew six hundred seventy-five and twelve hundred, like there's going to be a lot of weekends they don't draw that well. And, yeah, and so I mean that tells you something. Yeah, I mean, I, I when you're when you're bringing in like the top stars and like also have Liger on the show. Now they acted like Mick Foley wasn't paid for his appearance here, but I. I assume, I don't know, I, I assume he was. I don't guess maybe I don't know enough about um, wrestling business. Well, we'll get to that, but I mean, certainly um, the the newsletters think he wasn't paid for it. Okay, so even if you leave Foley out of this, they had all the big indie stars, they have Jushin Liger, you know, they have bigger expenses than a lot of indies. 
it seems like it's probably hard to break even on those shows. Like, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just not financially savvy enough to really analyze it myself, but I, um, but I don't know if they were lying about it before, I don't see why they're not lying about it now. But, but I mean, I think it, the one thing is it, it's it's easy for me to believe that this show was obviously one of their b- better, more financially prudent for sure, double for shots. Sure, I for mean, sure. Or not prudent, uh, just beneficial, great, whatever, whatever. Successful anyway, is the word you're looking successful. for. Successful. Thank you, Matt. But finally, let's just get to the show. Let's get to the meat and potatoes here. Let's start Weekend of Thunder, night two. We open backstage with the embassy. That means Prince Nana, Jimmy Rave, the outcast killers, and Angel Williams. Uh, Nana says they had a great party in Boston last night, including shrimp cocktail. And it's all because of Jimmy Rave. One, uh, of, my, one, of, my, one of my favorite wrestling tropes is when wrestlers pretend they were they had a big party, but they actually were just like driving in the middle of the night from Boston to New Jersey. Yeah. I also just love like shrimp cocktail is the extravagance like the okay. thing you get for free when you're at the casino. Like Yeah, that's a Nana thing, but I also seem to remember um the Trent Acid said it when they won the tag team titles. But they were like, <laughs> this the shrimp cocktail. It's like I mean it's it's an hors d'oeuvre. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Since it's independent wrestling, there's like a 5% chance they're talking about some weird sexual thing that we're not aware of. Maybe, you know, got the old shrimp cocktail, but. Well, uh, <laughs> now I have, now I can't get that out of my head. <laughs> so, um, yeah, anyway, uh, Nana says the shrimp cocktail, all the goodies, it's all because of Jimmy Rave and his performances. Uh, Jimmy says he can't wrestle tonight, though, because he doesn't have elbow pads. I don't know how he lost them, but he says he did. Nana says, that's no problem, though, and he sends Angel Williams away to find Jimmy some elbow pads and make him something to eat, which I hope the Rexplex has a good kitchen, I guess. Uh, the killers want food, too, but Nana instead sends them to help Williams cook Jimmy some food. Three men, three people going to make uh, Jimmy some some vittles. Uh, I, Nana I, says, I, enjoy, I enjoyed Nana saying that he likes the food the outcast killers make. Like it's, yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, okay, he finally compliments them. He's calling them good cooks. Yeah, like Diablo Santiago, secret gourmand, just, you know, really knows his way around a salt shaker. Uh, Nana says it's going to be an unbelievable year for him and Jimmy, which, you know, honestly, it is turned the next year is pretty good for Jimmy Rave. So he's not wrong here. Um, and that brings us to the opening match of the I, show. Nana, oh. by the way, just had a great night tonight in terms of like his performance. Like just he was so fun the, every time he appeared. Yeah. And this is, you know, you there there are times like we, one of the fun things about watching the shows from the beginning in order is like you really see when guys kind of kind of get established and comfortable and i mean you can tell i mean we'll get to it a little bit later even the way that the crowd is now reacting to jimmy rave like the, the, they're now firmly established as like a part of the the regular show that fans expect and enjoy and you know anticipate so it, it's cool to see but Opening match of this show was Chad Collier and Nigel McGuinness, and they went to a time limit draw in 15 minutes. Um, Mike Johnson, who was there live, will have a few notes for him throughout the show. Matt, before I throw it to you, uh, I guess we'll give Mike Johnson's opinion first. He wrote, this was a solid match based on where you were sitting. He says, ringside it was good, but it seemed that the farther back you were, the less you thought of the match based on reactions I've heard. Uh, Matt, you weren't sitting anywhere in the building. You were at home watching it on DVD like me. What's it like watching it on DVD? Um, I thought that like the work was good, but the intensity was kind of missing. 
I, I mean, not that you expect this match to be so intense, but just like it just seemed very um, low stakes considering that they're two guys on the rise. You know, I, I just, I, you know, I certainly always enjoy Nigel's work. You know, I really like, you know, the the rollout and the escaping and the, you know, Nigel doing like a, he, like he rolls out of a side headlock into basically sitting on Collier's back. Like just like stuff like that. Nigel is just so much fun to watch. Um, you know, there were uh, the, the finish, you know, the, uh, the time limit draw. I really thought that took the, the, uh, the match down a lot because it's just not something ROH does. They don't focus on the time limit much. It's just so out of the blue. And, you know, the crowd chants bullshit. And it's like, do you really want to start your show that way by getting the crowd mad? Like, uh, it doesn't make sense to me. And I actually do think the crowd was kind of down in terms of their, like, intensity for a lot of the night and, like, their their noise. And I wonder how much of it had to do with this uh, this crappy finish uh, in an opening match. Um, that said, um, there was fun stuff. You know, there were lots and lots of roll-ups. You know, by the end of the match, the crowd was, you know, getting into, you know, the, the, the Cloverleaf and, you know, chanting, please don't tap. They really wanted Nigel to win. Um, there was, there was also, um, just some amusing stuff about it and some bad stuff. Like, um, at one point, CM Punk starts to make a joke about being headbutt by Billy Idol. And then he realizes it's a bad joke. So he's just like, Oh, what am I talking about? And just gives up <laughs> on the joke. Um, um, then another thing that I noticed. So Gabe still doesn't have a name for Nigel's submission. He still calls it quote that arm submission. Meanwhile, two days in a row, he calls the toilet flush roll up. <laughs> so it's like. So we get the toilet flush immediately. Get that gets a name, but our, Nigel McGuinness's submission, which he's been doing, which I've seen him do at least since like the spring, maybe even earlier. Um, that doesn't have a name. I don't understand that. Um, and then of course we get to the problematic stuff, um, which is there is a uh, a woman in the crowd. Now, do you think she was a plant? I kind of think um, she was. I think she was. Yeah, I mean. It, I, I kind of got that vibe. I'm not 100% sure, but yeah, I mean, you, you explain why we might think she might be a plant. All right. So he gets, he gets her, he gets a woman in the crowd to kiss his hand. Nigel does after it gets stomped on by Collier. And first of all, Punk calls her a whore because you cannot be an ROH announcer in 2004 without saying some really fucked up shit about women. And then he immediately after that says that this quote, squashes the rumors that Nigel McGuinness is gay. Um, so that's absurd for obvious reasons, like an absurd, <laughs> ridiculous thing to say. But also, did you know that the, the main thing that makes some a man a heterosexual is if a woman could kiss his hand? Did you know that? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Th- that's why um, men, you know, in the Arthurian days where they would get down on one knee and like go, my fair lady. And, you know, when they greeted a woman, kiss her on the hand. Like they just want everyone else to know that they weren't gay. Like all the other nights you just did that. You know, any hand kissing, it's immediately a sign of your sexual orientation. Right. It's, it's all about the hand kissing. But then he gets the same woman to kiss his cheek. I have to say, if that's unplanned. It's at least a little bit problematic. I mean, maybe at the time it didn't seem that way, just telling a stranger to kiss you on the cheek, but she does. Um, then Collier, after he gets crotched, 
Oh, no, what happens was he's like stepping over the middle rope and Nigel kicks the middle rope into his crotch. So Collier goes to that same woman and asks her to kiss his crotch. And yeah. she does. And I'm punk goes 10 bucks says she does it. That's really the moment where I'm like, okay, that's, that's a plant. Like if the guy's walking over to her, like telling him to kiss his crotch, like this is clearly like a spot that they planned in advance, you know, and um, it's an ROH show. So I don't think they could really count on there being a woman in the front uh, to be able to do all this stuff with. Um, I'm half joking there. But yeah, that's what I thought. I thought the match was, had good stuff, but I was, I was disappointed. I didn't think the finish worked for me. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I thought this match was disappointing because I like both these guys. I still thought it was like uh, not terrible. I thought it was like a little bit above average, but I was expecting like something better than that because I, I think both these guys are good. I, I thought, um, the wrestling, you know, when they were doing the technical wrestling at the start, I actually enjoyed that a fair bit. But then when they started to ramp up, like a lot of these matches do, where they'll do like the first half technical wrestling, a lot of stuff on the mat, a lot of reversals. And then we'll, they'll, you can see a lot of wrestlers in the, in this era will just flip a switch and go, okay, now it's time to do the moves, quote unquote. And I felt like a lot of times that's when the match gets more exciting. I felt like this time, that's where I noticed what you said earlier, like the lack of intensity where when they were ramping up, it's like the match didn't get better for me. I actually thought in a way it got worse. Like they were doing really basic spots, like just like, okay, now we're heating up and doing a vertical suplex. And it was like, well, if you're just doing stuff this basic, I'd kind of rather you guys do the fun mat work again. Then you know, like, you're not really going that big at this point. And then the finish like Ring of Honor, you know, they've done time limit draws. We just saw two of them recently, but they were 60 minutes. And there's been plenty of undercard matches that have gone 15 minutes or more. So it seems really arbitrary. And there was no time cues or anything. Like it just seems really arbitrary to do it here. And also w- when they do the time limit fi- finish, um, Collier has Nigel in the Texas Cloverleaf and Nigel almost gets to the ropes and then, uh, Collier pulls him back into the center of the ring and then the time limit expires and Collier thinks he's won and then they have to tell him no you it's a time limit draw but I thought that even that was weird because Nigel seems like the guy that's a more of a regular where Collier's like a semi-regular at this point and you know Nigel's the one that seems on the precipice of getting you know a significant push and Collier isn't yet Collier's the one, and this isn't the first time, I think, I think we've, I forget exactly, but there's been at least one or two times before where guys have been in the middle of like starting to get a push in the mid card, and then they face Chad Collier and like lose clean to him. And here this isn't a loss, but it definitely made Nigel out to look like he was probably saved by the bell. So I thought that was a little weird too. Yeah, that, that's a good, yeah, that's a good point. Um, as far as, um, Collier goes, just like getting, random weird either wins or just like looking strong when you wouldn't expect it. But maybe that's just because we know that he never gets a big push and Gabe always is thinking that he will give him one and just never gets around to it. I don't know. Yeah. And I'm obviously this, this finishes all the setup and angle later in the night, which will be them forming a, a tag team. But I mean, you could have had them form a tag team without going to a time limit draw. This could have had a finish one side or the other. And you still could have had a tag team. You didn't need to do a 15-minute time limit draw to get that. But And I, and I can, will never understand why they do these draws without counting down to them. Like, I know it telegraphs them, but, like, I feel like that's better than just pissing people off. Yeah, and it, it's weird that um, I feel like a lot of companies, like, I think AEW early on tried to do the time cues, and I don't think they still do it where, like, 
if you really want to do the draws, you might as well just do, you know, the New Japan or whatever style where you just announce time cues regularly for matches, you know? I think probably just no one feels like actually keeping the time. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> but, um... Anyway, after the match, like I said, Collier thinks he's won, but has to be informed it's a draw. The crowd boos, they chant bullshit, but eventually that chant does turn to five more minutes. So whatever we think about the match, the crowd did want to see more. Yeah, um, I mean, they, I mean, that's a pretty, that's a prerequisite though. Right? Yeah. Like, like there's no, there's no way that that's not going to happen unless the match is just like beyond terrible. Well, I will say that on this night, I would have been like, eh, like, you guys don't have to do five more minutes. Like I- I'm good based on the quality of this. It-, it was okay, but like I wouldn't have been frothing at them. But yeah, I get when draws. You're kind of engineered as a fan to always demand five more minutes, which is it's always funny too that now we've gotten as wrestling fans where we just ask for five more minutes. Like why don't just ask for? I guess until a finish isn't as snappy a chant. But like, yeah, just yeah, I've, I've heard, I've heard, Jim, I've heard Jim Ross make fun of that too. Like, why five? Yeah, you know, why not twenty? Like, you know, there's a chance, you know, this match could keep going to twenty guys, and then you're like, I would love if, if the crowd <laughs> chant five more minutes. Then they did five more minutes, and that was a draw. And they were like, look, we would have given you more. This is all you asked for. You know, you should have, you should have been more careful with what you chanted. And then they just go home. But that, I, I think, well, I want to promote a wrestling show just so I can do that. <laughs> I, want, so, I, want, the, I want to start a seven more minutes chant one time <laughs> it's, a lucky, uh, it's like, a lucky a lucky number yeah definitely seven minutes for sure seven minutes probably just the right amount but uh next we return backstage for a generation next promo and this is just austin aries roderick strong and jack evans here alex shelley is not on the show uh, Aries runs down the history between the Second City Saints and Generation Next. He reminds us that they took out Colt Cabana the, in, on a few shows ago. He says, last night, you know, Austin Aries, I, you know, beat CM Punk and I left them bleeding. Aries then says that, uh, that this was all these things happened under matches with regular rules. He says, tonight it's no holds barred. So, Salient's, so, you know, what are we going to do tonight when there's no rules? Jack's Jack Evans says that Aries is spitting truth and he goes to shake Aries hand, which is bandaged. Aries winces in pain and Jack immediately apologizes. Uh, Jack says the word on the street is a lot of people aren't believing the hype on him. Jack says he's going to have to blow our minds one more time. I think, and, he, said, uh, I think he says one last time, oh, which is like, like, are you retiring? It's a weird thing to say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One last time. And maybe it's, it must be it must be from a lyric, I guess. I don't know if he was trying to rhyme, but he, the way he said he was almost right, where he goes, I'm going to have to blow your minds one last time so there won't be any question in our minds that he's the greatest of all time. So he kind of, kind of almost a little Nipsey Russell there for us. He also makes sure that Aries and Strong's match tonight is no DQ. He double checks, even though Aries literally just said that. And Evans, I guess he's kind of giving the thought of like, hmm, you know, that, that, that means something for me. Um, Aries ends up saying – Aries ends the promo by saying that soon the era of Aries as world champ and Jack and Ronnie as tag champs will begin. And then the great ending to this promo is Evan says, we're coming for you, bulldogs, pit bulls. Yeah, I love and, that. <laughs> and they, they just left it in like that. <laughs> yeah, no take two, no cutting, classic ring of honor. Just And, and I imagine, yeah, it, I mean, it was right at the end of the promo, but still, it's just like he clearly – flubs their names and and they just like nope keeping it in now um, now now did you notice they're planting big time seeds for post alex shelley generation next 
Um, first, first of all, he wasn't there at all this weekend. He's also not on the next ROH show. And I almost wonder if that was an intentional booking decision not to book Alex Shelley for these shows. Obviously, I have no idea what was going on in Alex Shelley's life. But um, the reason I wonder that is because they really set up like almost like an insurrection of Austin Aries. On this promo, he says, tonight... ROH is going to have is going to have to let the era of Aries as world champ and Evans as strong as tag champs begin. You know who do you leave out of that equation? Yeah, Alex Shelley. Um, I, I I I find it very interesting. I would love to know if Alex Shelley was intentionally left off a few shows to build to this. Um, but what, but I don't know whether he was intentionally left off or not. Like they definitely, I think acknowledge that when he does come back and they do the break, uh, well, not the, it's not a breakup, but when Shelly gets kicked out, the idea that, you know, you haven't been here. And yeah, that's I, what, I, that's another reason why I wonder like, Oh, maybe that was just like a choice. Yeah. Cause, yeah, cause, that, cause that, it's not, it's not like, it's not like TNA ran shows on weekends back then. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is an interesting thing. I, I wish I had thought of this sooner because I could have tried to look up, you know, K-Chat or something and see. I, see I, what did, was... I, I did, actually. So, mm. um, so and yeah, and like, you know, he, he had some indie shows on some of these dates, but like none of them seemed super major and not on all of them. So he was definitely, you know, not in our, there were definitely nights where he missed an ROH show and there were no other shows that he was on. Yeah, that's, def- that, that's, that's really interesting. Um. Next up, we have the Carnage Crew, DeVito and Loke, taking on Anthony Franco Davey, and Davey Andrews, the Ring of Honor students. They defeat – the Carnage Crew defeat the students in four minutes, seven seconds, when DeVito pinned Anthony Franco after the Carnage Crew hit him with the second rope pile driver. Uh, this was Anthony Franco's first Ring of Honor match on a main card. I think he had done a dark match before this. And, you know, this is quickly becoming a theme, but with all these Ring of Honor um, – uh, student matches, which is, it's basically a squash. They get almost no, they get a little bit of offense here, but really it's mostly just the Carnage Crew squashing them and the Carnage Crew even kind of, there's a playfulness to the Carnage Crew's performance here where you can tell even they're making sure you know they're not even really taking them that seriously. Um, just like the other Ring of Honor students matches we've seen, they, um, they don't, they, they just mostly bump and they, so they're not botching that. Although I will say Anthony Franco, he does a horrible, one of the worst clotheslines I've ever seen in this match. It's like slow and basically hitting the guy in the stomach, which <laughs> pretty low aiming clothesline, but I feel bad even criticizing it when this guy probably hadn't, he hadn't even had 10 matches in his entire career at this point. Um, I think this was also the first Ring of Honor match ever where Punk was actually commentating it, and it's his students, so it was always interesting to kind of hear him talk about his students, watching them, and talk about how proud he was of them. He noted how they were all dressed in black gear, saying that they needed to, quote, earn their colors, kind of New Japan style. Um, the only thing I think was uh, a little notable otherwise is... Uh, on the spike pile driver, I slowed this down on replay just to make sure Anthony Franco looked like he kind of lost his position, like his grip on the legs in the pile driver. And he almost like, if you look in slow motion, it looked like he almost hit head first. Like he bare, like the legs of his opponent barely came down before his head and could have been frightening. And you can even hear like Gabe and Puck kind of scream a little more than you normally would for a move like that, even though that is an impressive move. Cause I feel like, it was a close call. It looked like that spike pile driver. It's interesting, and I'm not saying it's just ROH that does this, but 
you know, this whole thing of like um, inexperienced wrestlers have historically been jobbers, you know, and they get squashed. And so, like, one thing that inexperienced wrestlers have often had to do was take really big and, you know, um, aggressive moves from more experienced wrestlers. And, you know, maybe that's not safe to, like, to take a guy who's barely had any matches and give him a, a move as dangerous as a pile, a spike pile driver off the ropes. I don't know. Um, as far as the match itself, um, yeah, it was just a squash. Um, I thought that the Carnage crew were kind of generous. Like they, 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 they sold a little bit for the guys. They even let, um, Andrews like stop DeVito from doing the double team pile driver the first time. And like Franco rolled up Loke for an actual near fall, which, you know, I wouldn't have expected that in this match. Um, but other than that, yeah, it was just. I did think it was funny that Gabe went, what a victory for Loke and DeVito, when it was like, <laughs> hey, it wasn't that impressive, and B, it was against, like, two guys who barely were wrestlers yet. So, I um, I don't know, but hey, that was probably just a knee-jerk thing that he said. Um, And during the match, uh, I forgot to bring up Allison Danger. She was at ringside. She came to the ringside, still in her... Uh, in her evening gown, her dress, whatever that is. And uh, so then that feeds into immediately after the match, Allison Danger gets in the ring with a mic. We get a please don't talk chant from the crowd. Uh, Allison says that she can bring the Carnage crew all the victories that, quote, will satisfy all their carnal needs and desires, unquote. I don't, I don't know if winning wrestling matches will satisfy all your carnal needs and desires, but maybe, maybe the Carnage crew that their needs and desires are that limited. Um, I mean, she was clearly alluding to other things that she could do for them. Yeah. Well, she said, bring you all the victories that will set, but yeah, I guess sex is a victory. Well, with me, sex is usually a, a massive defeat on my part, but, uh-huh. um, she asked them to, she, so she I th- asked, I think, the, I think me and everybody listening can relate. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, um, she asked the car crew to join up with her. Uh, she says she's the bearer of all of Moth and Whitmer's secrets. I just wrote my notes. They have secrets? Question mark. <laughs> like, what are the secrets of Moth and Whitmer? I don't know. Um, DeVito grabs the mic away to a big pop and he calls Danger, Allison Danger, a rat. He tells her that unless she's there to give them a lap dance, shut your mouth, bitch. And that also gets a big pop from the crowd. Uh, the car crew mock her and walk away as Danger screams at them. She p- keeps screaming that, you know, I still own Moth and Whitmer's contracts and I'm going to put you guys in the most dangerous match in Ring of Honor history, um, which... Might be actually a few matches later in the card. Maybe she should book them against John Walters in a pure title match. But, uh, yeah, this is, you know, we're not huge fans of the Carnage Crew storyline. It sees now they're mixing in the Allison Danger stuff in with it. And, yeah, just, it's also just a sign again of how far we've come in 15, 16 years where you can just see a woman come in the ring. Yes, she's a heel, but still they're basically very misogynistic and shitty. And I think the crowd would hopefully not react with as much zeal to that as as they did here, where it seemed like that was almost like their favorite thing. The Carnage crew did tonight was call Alice in danger, a bitch and tell her that she should be giving them lap dances. But um, yeah, not much else to say there. Uh, Back. We go return to backstage. Brian Danielson says Liger barely beat him last night, and he sets up tonight's dream partner tag rematch. Uh, Danielson says he picked low key, and he describes key as the guy who gave him his toughest match in Ring of Honor. But I, I was thinking when he said that, 
you just lost to Jushin Liger in Ring of Honor the night before. Low key, you beat him in that match. Like, wouldn't Liger or Samoa Joe or something be your toughest match in Ring of Honor? But well, you know what? But, well, the probably the, the problem is he was probably speaking like honestly, actually. You know, like as in like that match was probably the toughest match he actually had to work. But from kayfabe perspective, you're right; it makes no sense. Yeah, because he he's saying this is my toughest match when he's had losses in Ring of Honor. But yeah, but just a very short thing. And continuing that thing that that um trend that I know you've liked lately, which is having guys hype the main event on the show you're watching rather than just kind of oh the main event's on this show we don't need to talk about it anymore. Exactly. I would have liked a low key promo. Yeah, uh, definitely. Th- that would have been something. Man, a promo with those two guys together would have been pretty entertaining. I think. <laughs> wouldn't have been quite Danielson, Paul London, and PWG levels, but yeah, I think that would have been an interesting combination. Um, next up, we have Izzy, and he de- defeating Fast Eddie, Jack Evans, and Trent Acid in 8 minutes, 20 seconds, when he pins Acid after he hits a top rope slice bread number two. Matt, we've seen a lot of crazy spot fest four ways and six ways. This was another one of those eight minutes is relatively short. How did this stack up in the great list of all of the millions of these that we've seen? I think it was one of the most entertaining ones in a while, honestly. Um, first of all, I'm happy that Izzy's back from his bad trip. Um, that was good to see. But um, I th- I'm thinking, you know, it's, it was it was worked basically like a scramble. So I am going to just go through, like, some of the spots. And, um, you know, because that's basically what the match was, right? Um First of all, Evans and Acid start out, and they don't mention that they were the finalists in the Scramble Cage Melee, which I was surprised by, but um, Acid does, like, a sloppy spinning DDT, and he has, like, a stain on the front and back of the top of his shorts, and Punk's like, it looks like he, it looks like he wet himself, and Gabe just kind of ignores that completely, which <laughs> usually Gabe really likes to uh, needle Trent Acid, so I was surprised that he let that one go. In case anyone was wondering, Gabe does mention that Fast Eddie is legally blind. Um, I, I know that was. I know that a lot of people were in suspense um, for that one. At one point, Izzy has Eddie up for a vertical suplex, and Evans just comes out of nowhere with this crazy spinning kick to Eddie while Izzy is holding him up. I thought that was really cool. Um, then Acid does a moonsault to the outside onto the whole Special K crew and and Fast Eddie. Um, so Eddie goes for his like his fallaway dive with Evans onto the floor, but Evans knocks him onto the pile and does his own crazy flippy do. Uh, Evans was actually like really on tonight um, in terms of his flippy do's, and that that'll mm-hmm. come up, that'll come up later also. Um, Acid does a backseat driver, which is like a reverse splash mountain, like almost like pancake thing. Kind of hard to explain. Like he has him up like in a razor's edge position, but like facing the mat. And then just kind of yeah. like brings him forward and drops him face first. And I thought that was really cool. Um, Eddie does like a tombstone onto Izzy completely out of nowhere after using his arms to flip him into position. And then Acid boots Eddie. And then and then Evans, who does like a flip bump off the boot. Um, then Izzy jumps up and hits, hits a reverse Rana on Acid. And Izzy gets a near fall. And the crowd is just going insane at this point. This is like probably honestly the hottest the crowd is for the whole first half of the show. Um Eddie and Evans, they agree to work together, but Eddie double-crosses him, and Punk says, well, it's embarrassing to get fooled by the legally blind guy, and Gabe is like, he's blind, that doesn't mean he's stupid, and Punk's like, speak for yourself, which 
what? <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, now Eddie does hit the following moonsault slam onto Evans, onto Special K. Izzy hits the slice spread number two from the top on on Acid and wins. So Acid's losing streak continues, and Izzy breaks the losing streak for uh, for Special K. Um, I just I just thought it was a lot of fun. Like I, you know, sloppy at points, but not that sloppy. The pace was really good. I thought the high flyers were on their game. So I give it a thumbs up. It was a good scramble style match. Uh, yeah, I, I think this was one. I agree. This is one of the better spot fists that we've seen in a while in Ring of Honor on these undercard kind of scramble matches. You know, it, it's short and uh, the kind of these matches I like is where they make almost no pretense of it being a match. Like they went almost immediately just to doing big spot after big spot, you know, with not much holding it together. But the spots were all huge and real. And like, like you said, this was probably some of Jack Evans' best flippy dudes that we have seen yet in his Ring of Honor run were on this night. I even loved, like, Jack Evans is a guy who I think is almost as much fun to watch bumping as it is to watch him on offense, you know, where he takes, like, a bump off that Trent Acid Yakuza kick, and he turns that bump into a shooting star press onto Fast Eddie, who's lying prone right near them. Like, great stuff like that. Um Punk, meanwhile, I noticed Punk on commentary, you know, not only did he point out that Tread Acid looked like he wet himself, which it, it did kind of look like he had wet himself. Not that I think he actually did, but... No, um, I, I'm, I'm very confused by why your shorts would be wet. Yeah, I don't know if a, a water spilling accident or maybe, I don't know, a on bleaching... The fr- on, on the front and the back? <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I don't know. But uh, I, there was a moment, too, on commentary where Punk went out of his uh, way, which he does occasionally, to uh, mock Mark Nolte. And it's clear he's watching the other shows and, like, getting mad at Mark Nolte. Because Punk points out, he, he makes an, an uh, he goes out of his way to make a note that he goes, now, I would have called that a Greco, he goes, like, Mark Nolte would have called that back suplex a Greco-Roman back suplex. But if you look it up, suplexes were actually illegal in Greco, Greco-Roman wrestling. And it's like, it's just like little details like that where it feels so petty like not that i've been a huge fan of martin alti's commentary but you can tell that punk is like and if you want to be real conspiracy theorist knowing that dave Prezak comes in the next year and he's cm punk's friend that maybe you know punk has an agenda of tearing martin alti down not that i thought martin alti you know was incredible and deserved to be the commentator forever but punk definitely goes out of his way occasionally to kind of shiv mark a bit um this was also a show, uh, uh, one of those matches where uh, people don't remember this now, but back in this era, there was a lot of uh, the great Mark Nolte, uh, I mean, not Mark Nolte, but uh, a lot of Jack Evans gear debates because Jack Evans didn't have gear at this time. He wrestled like in track pants and stuff. And people would say, oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, it's part of his charm. Other people would say, oh, he needs, I can't take him seriously. And there'd be these huge kind of pointless arguments. But this was a match where you did like, Jack Evans is almost falling out of his track pants early on in this match. Like his underwear is coming out like on move two or move three. And those are the moments where you can see why some people were like, Jack, just get some gear. Like, you know, don't just wrestle in gym pants. Cause yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually, I've always been all for just people having unique ways of dressing in the ring. Like, um, I guess that's why I'm such a big IRS fan. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a joke. You love guys wearing ties to the ring. You, you look being in a match is no excuse to not be professional. Exactly. Um, That's like people say get gear. No, what you got to get is a tie. <laughs> it, uh, another um, 
commentary a little bit. Uh, Punk says at one point that Jack Evans is the premier high flyer in Ring of Honor, but he can't take a shower. He goes, someone explain that to me. So I don't know if Jack Evans stinks or something. This was probably just an offhand Punk, like, joke. But, like, it was, like, another weirdly specific thing, like, to call that, say that Jack Evans smells, like, I, I would never have, like, Jack Evans seems like a clean guy. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't shower, but just like the idea. And just the way, again, he, the ham headed way he worked in, like he's the premier high flyer, but he can't take a shower. Like what? Like uh, <laughs> what does one have to do with the other? I don't know. But, um, so yeah, I feel like I've talked about commentary more in the match, but again, only eight minutes, but it's just not, big, not, not uncommon for ROH undercards. Yeah. Uh, just big, crazy spots, eight minutes through. Um, Mike Johnson, who was there again live in the front row, really loved this. Mike Johnson's live report said this was an incredible four quarters match, and he called it the best eight minutes, 20 seconds of a match you could ever imagine. Mm. I, I don't know <laughs> if I would go that far. I think, I think Mike got a little caught up in the live experience on this night. That's but, insane. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's some classic hyperbole right there. Yeah, um, he also noted, and uh, this was another show, it came right to three hours, so they cut out a lot of entrances. So Johnson points out that Trent Acid is no longer using the Midnight Express theme, and he goes, I am sorry to see that go. It's interesting, you know, because they were kind of trying to do a storyline where Trent Acid was, you know, he loses another multi-man match. He's the king of the multi-man matches, but he's only got a couple shows left, but I wonder if that was just a... If that, I don't know if that's a reaction to Cornette coming back soon, or if that's just part of his storyline where he's lost his mojo. But it's interesting that he even took that away from him. But or maybe it's just a decided to change his music. I don't know. But um, after the match, he's, the, he's came, the Keith Lee of Ring of Honor in two thousand and four. <laughs> no skirt for Trent Hassett, although. I wonder how that would have affected his looking like he wetted his pants situation. But well, you can't wear your you can't wet your pants if you don't have pants on. <laughs> now, just imagine that that guy with the, like the 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 um, the, uh, the the gif with the guy who's pointing to his head. Yeah. Um. <laughs> After the match, uh, Special K celebrate that the losing streak over. Meanwhile, Trent Acid's woes continue. Uh, I did think it was funny too, Matt, where briefly on commentary, Gabe acknowledged that like Izzy's the one member of Special K that isn't taking things seriously, and he's also the one member that's like doing well, which continues what we've talked about in the past, which is unintentionally it feels like Ring of Honor's Special K storyline. The point of it is. If you have respect and take things seriously, you won't do as well as someone that just does it and does a lot of drugs. Or at the very, that, or at the very least, that Special K got their abilities from the drugs. Yeah, it was their Popeye spinach because <laughs> the guy that breaks the streak is the guy that they said in the last show, you know, was on a bad trip and no showed, and he's the one that wins. He's the only one that can win. The guys that are now shaking hands and being respectful are the ones that can't win. But um, well, don't, don't you ever hear people? tell you their stories about the time that they dropped acid and they were like, and I realized how to win four corner survival matches. <laughs> God, God spoke to me. Look, a tab he, acid has four corners. The match has four corners. Not a coincidence. Yeah. God spoke um, to me and he was cheese. And he told me to do a slice bread number two. And all the moves are food. <laughs> And what that am I, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> you had a CM Punk Billy Idol story moment where you cut yourself off. You're going, oh my god. Um, next up was Jimmy Rave, scored to the ring by Prince Nana, and the rest of the embassy defeated Jay Lethal. 
via, via pinfall in eight minutes, 39 seconds after he hits the Rave Clash, a.k.a. Styles Clash. Uh, before the match, Nana came out with the Outcast Killers. He cut a very similar promo to the night before. He called down the fans. He said that they smell and they should, they should kiss the floor when he walks by. It was because uh, Jack Evans was just out there. That's the smell. <laughs> he stunk up the place. Uh, Nana hands the Outcast Killers to the yogurt spray to purify the air. And then he introduces Jimmy Rave. Nana does the same bit he did the night before where he orders Angel Williams to get down her hands and knees so that what Rave can use her as a step steel to enter the ring. The one thing I did like about this is even though this was very similar to the night before on comment uh, on his mic work, Nana did say, I thought I told you the night before to Angel Williams because I do like occasionally in Ring of Honor or sometimes indies like they won't. They'll just act like it's a house show where no one will ever watch the show before. I did like that Nana, even though he was mostly doing the same act that he had just started the day before with the deodorant and angel williams he did go out of his way to be like you know i did this before like night before you're still not getting it and then in i a another milestone for ring of honor and for jimmy rave he's been having a lot of these lately rave steps in the ring and we get the first toilet paper throw in the ring of honor history for his entrance but i don't think it was toilet paper i think it was streamers actually like for the first little while and then um he like it's like but only he's taking the streamers as like a negative because he actually throws them back and that's what gets the crowd to to do it and then like about a like months later he actually does like a video that ROH puts online saying stop throwing toilet paper at me and then people actually bring the toilet paper yeah okay that makes sense uh, see I confused it but yeah you're probably right because this was also a very streamer heavy show in the main event a lot of people obviously brought them because of Liger but so yeah that makes sense that people would have white ones on hand but they but, just but, yeah, you're white- right that this is the beginning of what leads to the toilet paper because yeah. after this show people will throw streamers at him and he'll react to it negatively like so so that is that will become a thing very soon so I thought this I thought this match overachieved a little bit. I I didn't think it was amazing, but I thought it was outright good. This was an, a good match. I thought you know like three three and a quarter stars. Like it's funny. Like you don't think of Jimmy Rave and Jay Lethal as two guys that like they can do some of the stuff, but not like the go 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 just moves moves moves. And well, this wasn't like a breakneck pace or like incredible like dangerous cutting edge moves it was these two guys doing a very action oriented you know we're not necessarily going to tell a story or build it up we're just going to try and fill our relatively small short amount of time not that short but like with as much action as we can and it was it i thought it was very enjoyable on that level i think this jimmy rave is another act where he's really starting to get over with the crowd you hear we want aj chance during the match and before the finish even where he does you know what is basically the styles clash uh there were some scrambly but cool fast mat reversals to start that i liked there, there was, you know, some spots that weren't great. I mean, um, Jay Lethal does do kind of an ugly powerbomb spot. And again, this I wouldn't call this like a classic match. It was just a little bit different than what I expected and a little bit better than I expected. And I like both these guys. There were some moments like um, Rave does a cool move where he just picks Lethal almost in into almost a torture rack. And then he just drops backwards. And Punk kind of sells it as like not the highest impact match, but it gets him in a pain predicament. I actually thought it didn't need that kind of like a excuse. I thought it just looked cool on its own merits. I thought you could sell this. Oh, that's fairly impactful. You know, he puts him up on his shoulders and then falls backwards on top of him. 
Um, Rave transitions from one point from a crucifix right into a crossface really smoothly, which I enjoyed. There'd be another cool crucifix spot later in the show. This is a good night for crucifix counters or crucifix modifications. And I, I, I think Lethal continues to show he has really good babyface energy, especially like on his comebacks. I love his firing up with super loud chops. I love his really springy athletic drop kicks. I love, love, love his big jumping DDT off the turnbuckle. Like all that stuff looks really great. So again, I'm, this probably sounds like I'm probably overhyping this match a little bit, but I just was, I thought, a pleasant surprise for the mid card of the show. I'm probably um, lower than most on this match. I um, I don't know. I, I do have higher expectations for these guys. I thought after this match, my thought was actually the opposite of yours, which was they can do better. I mean, I think Jimmy Rave and Jay Lethal are both really good wrestlers. Um, and, you know, we're pretty good even at this point. So... You know, I thought the match was just okay. I thought there was things about it that felt pretty indie, which, you know, fair enough, it is. Um, you know, like some of those wacky roll-ups, but, like, you could tell early that they're going to work hard. Um, but I just thought there was, like, a um, an alternation between, you know, really cool, impactful spots and spots that just felt, like, too cooperating. Like, I don't know how to describe it. That arm trap fireman's carry into a pinning combo that you're talking about, I, um, obviously Rave didn't feel like it was so great because he kind of abandoned that. He never really, he didn't use that again, at least not once his push started. Um, you know, I thought there was, but there was definitely cool stuff. Like, it wasn't a bad match at all. I thought it was an okay match. I, um, I don't know. There was just something about it that I felt like they could have just been a little more on point and done a little better. Um, hard to describe. I will say it's, it was interesting listening to Punk defend rave knowing they were going to have such like a hate-filled feud just a few months later um but you know it is what it is but you can tell both of these guys are still just kind of coming into their own and improving and trying hard and clearly it worked for the crowd and it worked for gabe so because they're both continuing to be on the rise i'm very interested in how they've decided to push lethal because he does he does lose a lot um you know where it's like he's kind of like the anti-chad collier they're clearly pushing him, but he doesn't win that often. He he did lose here via cheating. The finish was um, the kind of the, the way Jimmy Rave is winning most of his matches around this time, which is he's losing. Nana gets on the house mic late and starts cheering Jimmy on, telling him he's got to make a comeback. This time it actually distracts uh, Lethal and – well, no, no, it doesn't distract Lethal. It distracts the ref. Sometimes it doesn't, but this time it did. And then Lethal is going for the dragon suplex, but since the ref isn't looking, uh, Rave can do a mule kick right to his balls and then hit the uh, the Rave clash. But I, I just, yeah, I just he, remember Lethal losing to Collier a, few, yeah. you know, a couple shows ago, and then losing again here. Like, I'm obviously they're not going to have Jimmy Rave lose at this point. Like, they're clearly behind him. But I thought they were more behind Lethal at this point than they really were. Also, um, Lethal wins the uh, pure title a few months from now. And yeah. I don't know. I just thought they were they would start building that up sooner, but maybe it's the next show where he really starts to get that push. But so I liked it more than you. But Matt, I think we can agree that Mike Johnson probably liked it maybe more than both of us because again, Mike Johnson very high on this show. Very, now the show. Yeah, the new greatest eight minutes in the history of wrestling. 
No, well, this is the quote, Matt. I mean, yeah, Matt, I almost confused you, but then I didn't confuse with, with Mike. But um, Lethal is going to be re- – Mike Johnson writes, Lethal is going to be remembered in the same vein as Benoit and Guerrero when the book of his career is written if he keeps improving at the rate he has the last few months. Uh, like hmm, Okay. <laughs> that, that that's pretty hot. Like Lethal's good, but yeah, Jay Lethal's a quite good wrestler. I um, you know, I think he'll probably. I mean, I'm just not even going to go there related to Benoit. Um, but yeah, you know, it would. I mean, hey, listen, his career is not over yet. I guess he could reach Eddie Guerrero heights. You never know. Um, and the observer, it's always <laughs> the observer. It's always interesting to uh, n- read what guys in in like the newsletter world knew and didn't know because we're not this far we're not far away at this point from AJ Styles returning to Ring of Honor. But Dave wrote right after the show here. He wrote, Jimmy Rave continues to get great heat using the Styles Clash, although the match everyone wants to see at this rate may have to wait for TNA going out of business. And in fact, we would get it in just a few months from now. Yeah, like but, yeah, that's exactly three months later. <laughs> yeah, so interesting that you have to imagine it's probably set in motion at this point. But especially at this point, like um, they even talk about it on commentary, like you know AJ Styles and stuff like that. So should the, we just be one of those? Pod, should we just be one of those podcasts that gets really mad every time Dave is Dave is wrong, where it's just like that Dave Meltzer, he doesn't, he keeps talking out of his ass. I don't. I, actually, I, I, I don't actually feel that way, but it does seem like a pretty good uh, podcast industry in terms of making your show popular and getting a lot of really big weirdos to like it. I was just reading yesterday that Conrad Thompson is announcing new podcasts soon, and because I don't know where the hell this guy finds the time, but apparently <laughs> he's got multiple podcasts coming up. He's with former WWE Hall with WWE Hall of Famers, and they were talking about. He said in the past he was almost about to do a Jeff Jarrett TNA history podcast before he went to uh, WWE again. He said he was working. He want he wants to do a, a Joey Styles ECW history podcast. Matt, who do you think? A little thought experiment here. I'm putting you on the spot, so this is unfair. But if Conrad Thompson was going to do a Ring of Honor history podcast, who do you think would be a good fit for that? Especially, so it's got to be like a former wrestler and also someone that will shit on Dave Meltzer. Like, would that be Austin Aries or someone? Like, who who would fit the Conrad Thompson mold if he wanted to go as deep into wrestling as Ring of Honor doing the Conrad formula? Um, is Rob Feinstein available? <laughs> um. <laughs> He probably, he definitely is. Um, I don't, I don't know how Carrie Silkin feels about Dave Meltzer. Um, also, don't know how Gabe Sapolsky feels. Could be interesting. Uh, I mean, honestly, I would listen to a a Gabe podcast um, yeah. all day long. I think that would be super interesting. Um, you know, I know he doesn't like to talk about the past that much. That's the thing about Gabe. But if someone could convince him to, it would be super duper interesting. And the problem Gabe has, as a lot of wrestlers and people in wrestling have, is because in wrestling, you're never really retired. You don't age out of it. Like, there's a lot of emphasis on not burning bridges and not saying things that could get you in trouble or getting on the nerves of someone that you might be working with in the future. Where worked out, worked out, worked out okay for Bruce Pritchard. 
<laughs> well, Bruce has got that magic touch, don't you know? But uh, yeah, so I, I imagine there's, you know, generally the people that speak out the most in 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 wrestling, they're the most honest, are sometimes the people that have burned so many bridges is almost like they have nothing left to lose, or they're just so kind of wild they don't care. But it's interesting I, that it's interesting that Conrad has that show with Jim Ross, since Jim Ross almost never insults Dave Meltzer. <laughs> yeah, another. I wonder. I don't know. I haven't listened to it really, but I wonder how much Arn Anderson talks about Dave Meltzer. Yeah. Um, but moving on, we get to a point that uh, oh, actually, I forgot. There's an after match segment here. After the match, we get another. We want AJ chant from the crowd. Nana gets on the mic to celebrate, but Lethal Jay Lethal quickly snatches the mic away. Jay tells Nana to shut the hell up and then slaps him, and then. The outcast killers go to attack Lethal, but Lethal dodges them and he gives them these weak little, I guess the crowd would refer to them as bitch slaps. But until they said you got bitch slapped, they just looked like really weak slaps to me. He does the same to Jimmy Rave. You get, there's a huge, you've got bitch, you got bitch slap chant from the crowd. Lethal leaves and the embassy rage in the ring. So we're getting a little bit of a lethal embassy feud here and Lethal gets a little bit of his heat back or whatever you want to say from the loss. Um, yeah, that was it. Was fun. I mean, and and clearly, they that was actually a bigger angle than I thought when I watched it because it leads to like a full on feud with uh, the embassy and Jay Lethal just from that one moment where he slaps everyone. So, hey, a novel way to get there. After that, we have a uh, a segment that did not make the DVD. This again was a three hour DVD with a bunch of the entrances really edited down, so they were cut for time, but. We, we uh, get something that did not make it, which is Mike Johnson writes from the live experience. Gary Michael Capetta came out for a special announcement, which turned out to be a letter from Jim Cornette stating that he has accomplished everything he has ever wanted to in his career, except for one thing. And that is to stand across the ring from the only person who could challenge his claim to being known universally as the greatest manager of all time. Bobby Heenan. Uh, Cornette's, later th- Cornette's letter then announced that on 12-4, so December 4th, when the company returns to Elizabeth, New Jersey, that he and Heenan, with dueling microphones, will be on opposite ends of the ring. Ring of Honor later announced that this will be the great managerial debate. There was a huge pop for that. Ring of Honor approached Heenan several weeks back about coming in as they were originally going to do something in April that went out the window when Heenan pulled out due to the issues of the time. Of course, Mike doesn't say this, but of course, the issues of the time were the entire Rob Feinstein scandal. But um, so, yeah, this was another sign that, uh, you know, the they had really Ring of Honor had really gotten through the Rob Feinstein scandal, just that a guy that had previously canceled because didn't want to be associated with it, felt comfortable enough that he could go and rebook himself to do this. That was planned. And, um, the observer wrote, I think we've talked about this before, but I'll just read it again. The observer wrote at the time, this was scheduled for Chicago earlier this year, but never happened when both Heenan and Cornette pulled out after the Feinstein scandal. They've never actually worked together. And I think the only time they've done anything public together was on the observer live radio show in September as a surprise present for Cornette for his 43rd birthday. You know, it's funny that Jim Cornette hates Dave Meltzer so much when like Meltzer was giving him like surprise birthday presents. (laughs) Like, Matt, would there be any – who would you want if you were on a radio uh, – on this podcast if I could say, Matt, 
surprise birthday present. You're going to get to talk to somebody right now. Who could I possibly get for you to give you a surprise birthday present where you'd be like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Um, I mean, Justin Shapiro and only Justin Shapiro. So don't even think about anyone besides Justin Shapiro. Okay, I'll have to see if he has a cameo page for your next birthday, if I can. That's the only way we're getting him on the show. Yeah, exactly. Buy a nice Shapiro cameo. But um, <laughs> What about you? Uh, my mom, probably. be nice to talk to her again. Mm-hmm. No, I'm very close with my mom. No, that's just the um, I don't know. I think I'd be un- I-, I would always feel just guilty about taking up anybody's time. It would just be, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, if Brian Danielson called up, I'd be like, oh... I want to ask you questions, but also I'm really sad that like you're probably would rather be like doing some gardening right now or spending time with your children. But I, I freeze up too much when I talk to people that are like famous to me or just famous in general. And so I just feel like it's not even worth talking to them. Nothing against them. It's just like I just get too uncomfortable. Like uh, talking to 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 people that are famous in any way is always such a weird power dynamic because like you really respect this person and have spent like dozens or maybe depending on the person or the thing hundreds of hours like experiencing their work and thinking about them talking about them reading about them and they don't know who the hell you are so it's like this weird thing where it's like oh Brian Danielson like. I've spent dozens of hours talking about you on a podcast and I've read your book and all this stuff. And he's like, you're just some guy that someone said I should say hi to. Like it, it just, I don't know how you can possibly have a conversation that isn't uncomfortable in that circumstance. Cause it's, it's just a, such a, a wide chasm of experience you have to bridge. Yeah. But for me, basically you, you could just end that sentence before in that circumstance as a human being. I don't know how you can have a conversation that isn't uncomfortable. <laughs> That's my ammo. Mm. So next up, we have a no disqualification tag team match. The Second City Saints of Ace Steel and CM Punk defeated Generation Next of Austin Aries and Roderick Strong in 20 minutes, two seconds, when Punk pinned Strong after he hit a Pepsi plant, Pepsi plunge onto a ladder. Um, Matt, the, you know, this is Ace Steel and CM Punk, the old deathmatch Saints back again after they're very well received, including by us, Moff and Whitmer, no DQ tag match. Now they're doing the no DQ with uh, Aries and Strong. How would you think this one stacked up to that? Well, this one was not a street fight because they were all wearing their wrestling gear, except for Austin Aries, who was wearing track pants. So yes. it was like a, um, it was like a track and field battle. That was actually the name of the match. Um, but, um, no, I, I I didn't really think this match was so great. I think these guys worked so hard. I think that they took a lot of punishment. There were some cool spots. Um, and by the end, the crowd was into it. But the crowd was pretty quiet for a lot of it. And it felt to me like an ECW match and not the best ones. But like a lot of like spot, rest, setup, spot, rest, setup. Maybe rest is the wrong word. But like spot, take a lot of time to set up spot take a lot of time to set up um and just like it just didn't have a flow to me um it had evans like evans you know from that promo earlier he came out very early on with a ladder so there's a lot of ladder stuff in the match and then you know guys took a lot of punishment um you know there was lots of barricade throwing there was a punk baseball slid the ladder into evans uh you know strong got suplexed on the ladder um, Steele got Russian leg sweep onto the ladder. So Aries, who did the leg sweep, you know, fell on the ladder himself. 
Um, you know, um, and also I didn't think that Gabe was super up to calling this particular match effectively by himself. Sometimes he does a fine job, but that I just, he didn't really know how to explain what was happening too well or didn't execute it at least. Um, he does do a cute thing though when Evans missed a spin kick that he did in the earlier match by saying that Punk saw it coming because he was doing commentary on the previous match. I thought that was pretty clever because I don't think I don't know if Punk had that in mind. Maybe he did. Maybe he told Gabe to say that, but I'm not sure. Um, but um, like, there's a point where like the Saints work on Evans for a while, and it seems like a waste because he's not like technically in the match. <laughs> um, you know, I, I didn't I didn't think that was you know, the best way to spend time. Um, but, um, so like there's one spot where Ace is in like the tree of, uh, the tree of, of woe, but and actually he wasn't in the tree of woe. He was just leaning against the ladder and Aries did a drop kick to Ace's head. And then strong followed up with like the sick kick to Ace's head still against the ladder. So he's like knocking Ace's head against the ladder. And, you know, when I'm saying all this stuff, keep in mind, the crowd is not really reacting that much to all this. Um, but Strong and Evans, they get to do some of their double teams. They get some near falls off of that. Um, they start to work over Punk's leg for a little bit. Um, like they get it in the ladder and stomp the ladder and hit the ladder with chairs. So at least by at this point, a story starts to develop. You know, Strong dro- drops Punk knee first onto a chair while uh, Evans is keeping Ace occupied on the floor. Um, so there's a spot where Steel gets back in the ring and he takes out Evans and Strong with a chair. And there's a spot where, like, all four guys are down. And usually at that moment in a match like this, the crowd gives them a round of applause. But they do not hear. They're just silent. Um, and, you know, I, and I, I just was, like, thinking, like, this match, it's just, like, as hard as they're working, as much punishment as they're taking, it just wasn't working for the live crowd. And I wonder if anything would have. Maybe it wasn't the match. Maybe it was just the crowd and the guys that didn't mix. I don't know. Um, but... Um, you know, they kept going, Punk is selling the leg, he's fighting strong, um, Ace doesn't, and there's like, Ace doesn't totally know what to do at certain points, like, it almost felt to me at certain points, like, this match, like, they didn't spend a lot of time working it out, like, maybe they didn't have enough time to really plan it out, um, you know, there were definitely big spots planned, but just, like, the flow just wasn't there for me. Um, the first thing that gets an actual pop is that Punk has the ladder in the corner and backdrop strong onto it. And then Ares is just lying on a table on the floor for a long time. Ace sets up a completely bent ladder and just climbs it, which I think is dumb because no one was even holding the ladder. Um, but Strong, like, electric chair, dropped him off of it. Um, then Strong threw, uh, throws Punk to the floor. Jen next put him through a table. Evans flips onto Punk on the table on the floor, and the table doesn't break. And Evans doesn't even get all the way over and Gabe screams, crash and burn dangerous. <laughs> and it was, it was almost like, like he was like, it's like an alternate kind of dangerous because it was a crash and burn dangerous. I don't know. I, I feel like crash and burn or car wreck are Gabe's like code for this is a botch. Yeah. Cause those are the two things he says a lot when there's a botch that he wanted to combine it here with dangerous, which yeah. he did. It was surprisingly he, I find that he picks odd moments to say dangerous. Like, when Joey Styles did Oh My God, like, they were for, like, pretty big spots. And Gabe, I feel like, just does it kind of at random. Um, there are plenty of huge spots where he does not say that for. I don't know. Um, but, so Aries puts Punk back on the table, um, goes for an elbow, but Punk moves, and Aries goes through the table. Then, um, 
at, then uh, in probably the best spot of the whole match, Strong has Punk on his shoulders, and Evans goes for a crossbody, but Punk catches him and power slams him on the table. And I, I thought that was one of the few big moves of the match that was like perfectly executed, like right onto the table. Like I, I thought that was so good. Then Punk slams Strong on the ladder. Then Aries did like a fireman's carry roll onto Ace onto the ladder. Went for the 450, but he moves and Aries crashes on the ladder. So Ace does a sit-down powerbomb on Evans through the table off the apron. Then Strong, um, uh, and now the crowd is actually into it. So finally, after all of that stuff, they got the crowd in. Um, Ace throws Aries into the barricade, into the barricade. So the Saints have Strong two on one in the ring. So Ace DDT Strong on a chair. Punk's hip hits the Pepsi plunge on Strong onto the ladder for the win. Um, so they worked very hard. Like I said, they took a ton of punishment. I just thought it was all over the place and not that good. And I thought that the crowd just, they didn't get going until the end. The last few minutes were pretty good. Before that, it just felt very meandering and I felt bad. I felt bad that they were working so hard and not getting the crowd to go along with them. Um, but what can you do? I like this match a lot more than you. I thought this was like four stars. Like I thought this was great. I, 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 it's one of those matches. A lot of times when we disagree, we actually like have similar thoughts. It's just how much we care about the good or bad points is different, but we agree on that. Like I agree on this match that I, I felt like this match, like there was no art to it in a way, which is such a highfalutin word, highfalutin word, but like, um, like you said sometimes you know it looked like the guys didn't like a steel didn't quite know what to do and like this match was there wasn't a great structure to it there wasn't like great transitions it was just four or i guess five guys it was basically a pseudo handicap match doing crazy spots involving weapons and and for 20 minutes straight it was just five guys hitting the violence button over and over again you know this wasn't like some great four course meal where every course has been labored over and this leads into this it was just here's a big bag of halloween candy we've dumped on the table it's just like it's just over the top effort and violence and you know if you like seeing guys get slammed onto a ladder that this match is for you because it happens like 20 times and in some ways that that um Jack Evans, who again, I thought Jack Evans' performance in this match was as good as his one in the four-way, even though technically he wasn't in this match. But in a way, I thought that spot you described kind of summed up the match where Jack Evans does this crazy forward flip leg drop from the ring to the floor onto Punk, who's on the table. He like barely gets one foot onto Punk and then, you know, crash and burn dangerouses. And um, the table doesn't break. But it's insane, and to me that kind of sums up the match, where it really is just, to quote Gabe Sapolsky about some other matches, a car wreck. But I, you know, I sometimes, I have to hate to admit, enjoyed watching those car wrecks on Fox specials in the 90s where they showed nothing but car wrecks for an hour. And this, to me, was a very fun, and you could tell, like you said, the effort level. Like, they were all, these guys were treating this like it was a big, important match. You know, a lot of times on the undercard, you know, guys give a hard effort, but they treat it like, you know, it's a mid-card match. These guys, you could tell, were trying to steal the show and just the bumps they were taking and the things they were attempting. But yeah, if, if you want anything other than just a lot of action and weapon spots. Like, 
there, you know, people talk about wrestling being the music between the notes, you know, the selling, the psychology, the structure, the transitions. There was no music between the notes. This was just notes. And, and you know, how you feel about that, I think, will greatly determine how you feel about this match. I also just think when you have a match like that, if it's going to be candy, I feel like a quiet crowd does not help the candy go down easy. I guess I would say that. I, I, I did. The crowd just felt very, very out of it to me. Yeah, I did not. It did not take. I didn't did not notice that as much as you, the crowd. Maybe I was just distracted by the carnage going on. And like you pointed out, I also I just wanted to make mention of the spot. I loved. You know, one of my favorite spots in Ring of Honor history is Punk doing the power slam when he's in the Doomsday device on a guy's shoulders. He does that against the Briscoes. And the fact that they recreated that spot here, but he does it to Evans and Evans lands, I think, on a ladder. Like, the most insane spot. And I love... Oh, I, wrote, I wrote table, but you're right. It might have been a ladder. Maybe I just mistyped. It, it's really interesting, too, because if you watch the match closely, late in the match... Punk clearly has a very like open conversation with the ref and then the ref immediately goes and talks to Roderick Strong and then immediately the very next thing they do is that spot. So I, I don't know if Punk was like, it's time to do this because clearly that's a spot you'd probably want you know to talk about before because it's such a difficult, crazy spot and it's finally like late, he's clearly like telling the ref, like, tell them like it's time to do this and they just immediately go to it. Um... Yeah, so this is a match I could see people having your reaction or my reaction. I could see a lot of people having both reactions. Um, one thing I will say that I I, I did uh, – one fault I had in the match apart from the things you talked about is even though technically there is a little bit of something to the Saints and um, uh, Generation Next feud where they said that you know they wrote out Colts european excursion as aries hurting his shoulder you know there really isn't that much meat to this feud and for a match this violent like you didn't get any real sense that these teams hated each other like and punk is generally really good in his feuds about having his feuds feel like they're about something more than you interfered in my match once so we're going to wrestle for a few months and he's also good about showing the emotion and stuff and even though there was a ton of like really brutal violence that you would think would go hand in hand with a big feud like you would never, you don't feel that hate. And we, we've even talked about in the past, like you've done a great job pointing out on recent shows where like punk on commentary, when he, on shows where he does commentary, doesn't even act like that mad that they've taken out Colt Cabana in storyline for months on end. Like, and, and it, this match kind of continued that trend where even though they're supposed to hate each other, it doesn't really feel like they're feuding. It just feels like they're just having a gimmick match. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I you know, sometimes you can tell when punk is more into some angles than others. And this uh, this feud was was not where his heart was, I don't think. You know, I think the Joe stuff, which you're about to get to, his heart is in that. And I one last little note, Mike Johnson continuing his very high trend on the show. Matt, you said this was like an ECW match, but not on uh, like a good one. I, I thought that was funny that you mentioned that because I knew that this quote was coming. Mike Johnson wrote, this was an, abs- an absolutely off-the-charts chart- match that would have been good enough to fit snugly on any ECW pay-per-view. So he I mean, took he, it kind I mean, of he's right. I mean, he's right that it could have fit on any ECW pay-per-view. Yeah, but I, I think he meant it in a much more positive light than you. 
just so everybody knows, we just edited because I had to uh, fix my uh, problem I was having with my microphone. Um, I realized that uh, you might have heard me coughing at different points or like sniffling or humming or something. And normally I mute my mic. Um, but the mute button that I use on my headset wasn't working because I realized that I was not using my headset. So now I am. So I apologize for that annoying hour and 31 minutes of my weird sounds. And you will not have any more of those. Um, so we will continue now. Uh, the, sorry the, about that. Matt, I have to say that the time when you were, when I was talking about Jimmy Ray versus Jay Lethal and you were in the background just singing the soundtrack to the Pirates of Penzant, like for five minutes straight, it was a little out of line, but I also can't help but admit that I enjoyed it. I might have burped, um, I might have burped at one point too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you did. Um, but again, you know, we have minor audio problems one time in 53 episodes or two or three times, but still pretty good batting average, free show. Just learn to love the content. <laughs> anyway, folks, um, after the match, CM Punk grabs the mic. He thanks Ace Steel, but he says, there's something I have to do by myself right now. And so they hug and Ace goes to the back. Punk says, October 16th was almost the greatest match of his life. He says, the only reason it wasn't is he didn't beat Joe for the world title. Punk thinks he deserves a third title shot because while Joe can say that Punk never beat him, Nobody but Punk can say that they faced Joe in a world title match and didn't lose. Punk says, I did it twice. Uh, Punk says that Joe is saying that he doesn't deserve another title shot and that he's dodging Punk. Uh, Punk says, in front of in front of one of Ray Varner's biggest crowds, on a night that Jushin Liger is here, in front of international media and the New Japan office, he is challenging Joe to a no-time-limit world title match next time they return to New Jersey. Uh, Punk says he's calling Joe out, and the champ isn't here. Uh, Punk says he's not leaving until Joe comes out, shakes his hand, and accepts the match. Punk then gr- takes a, a folding chair, and he sits right in the middle of the ring, and he waits when almost immediately Mick Foley comes out to a huge reaction. Big surprise here. Foley was not advertised for this show, as we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, Punk says Foley isn't Joe, and then he does Foley's own cheap pop thing where he's like, why are you here in Elizabeth, New Jersey? And... Um, Foley starts by doing a cheap plug for his new children's book, which he has in his hand. He says, uh, when it's re- he says it's rele- being released in conjunction with WWE, which just the mere mention of WWE draws a lot of hearty boos on this night. Uh, Punk points out that at least it's not TNA. We then get a loud fuck TNA chant. Uh, Foley points out that he wasn't advertised for the show. But a few days ago, he was depressed and then realized that wrestling is there for him. And that in just a few days' time, Jushin Liger could be there for him, which kind of had connotations. I don't think Foley meant, but it was kind of cute. Um, Foley hands Punk a photo, but then realizes it's the wrong photo. It's a photo of him and Yerple the, cra- the Clown. That gets a bunch of laughs. Uh, Joe, I mean, um, Foley then shows the right photo to the crowd. And it's of him and Jushin Liger posing together in 1992. And... I, I pause just to make sure. It looked like he actually had it autographed by Liger, too. And I believe it looked like Foley was wearing the same denim jacket there that he was like a decade and some odd years later on the show, which was a cute touch. Or if not, a very similar one. So it, it was a cute little legit playback of history where like Foley's like, look, I really was a fan of Liger even back then. Um, Foley says he called Ring of Honor up. And asked them if they could attend this, sh- if he could attend this show. He says, Ring of Honor told him they couldn't afford for him to make an appearance tonight. But Foley says, I just want to come as a fan. I'll do it for free. 
Uh, Foley then puts over Ring of Honor and he says that he told Punk after the last 60 minute draw he had with Joe that he stood in that crowd and it was one of the best things he's seen in his entire career. And he says, I don't bullshit. I don't lie. Um, Foley says that what he's about to say though will make the, make him the most hated man in the building. Uh, Foley goes on to say that one day he will go back to WWE and that draws some booze. Punk grabs the mic and says again, at least it's not TNA. We get another loud fuck TNA chant. We were really getting into the era of Ring of Honor at this point where a mere mention of TNA was going to get a lot of venom from the crowd because they resented what TNA had done in the whole Feinstein scandal. Anyway, Foley says that when he goes back to WWE, he wants to go back there with Joe and Punk. And that does get some boost, but I was kind of surprised that wasn't as many as I would have guessed. Like, Yeah, the, Foley, the ROH crowd is supportive of their guys becoming successful. Yeah, like the, like the the talk about just WWE in general got louder boost than the I, the mention of I'm gonna I want these guys to sign there with me. Um, Foley says the fact that Snitsky and Heidenreich are seen by millions every week and Punk isn't is a crime against humanity. Uh, Mick says that there's some people in WWE that don't think that uh, Punk has what it takes to make it. That draws big boos. Uh, Mick points out that Punk doesn't have chemically made muscles or huge man-made breasts, which seem to be the two keys to success in WWE. Uh, he goes on to say he's going to use his status as the hardcore legend to make Punk Joe 3 happen December 4th in New Jersey, like Punk wants. Foley says he's calling out Joe to make this match happen. Foley then the, says, say hello to Samoa Joe, motioning for Joe to make his entrance. Joe doesn't come out. Foley tries an introduction again. Joe doesn't come out. Mick says that Joe might be the best wrestler in the entire business. All due respect to Punk and Triple H. That gets a huge reaction and a giant fuck Triple H chant. Foley says at least he's not TNA, which cute. Um, Foley then says that Joe maybe has a touch of steamboat itis in him, and maybe deep down Samoa Joe is softcore. Have a nice day. Foley leaves to his music and a big reaction. Punk goes back to sitting in the middle of the ring. The camera shifts to Gabe Sapolsky, who's coming out and coming to ringside, I guess, to kind of sell that this is a this is a shoot, brother. Um, Punk turns his back to him, and then you hear a few fans start trying to start a, a Jimmy Bauer chant, which we always refer to Gabe as Gabe. So if you've forgotten, Jimmy Bauer was the fake name Gabe was using to announce these Ring of Honor shows. And then at this point, Bobby Cruz announces that there will be a brief intermission, which there was. So, Matt, before we get into the second half of this angle – I guess we should talk about that Foley thing. I'll just read a couple notes and then get your general thoughts on it. The Observer wrote about the show that Mick Foley had talked earlier in the week with Gabe Sapolsky about doing more shows when they were within driving distance of him. He actually never told Sapolsky he was coming until he got there and actually worked the show for free. Um, Mike Johnson adds, Foley was completely unannounced, so that the so the building went absolutely crazy. As it turned out, Ring of Honor didn't even know he was coming. Foley had mentioned possibly coming by, but it was never confirmed, and he showed up unbooked 30 minutes before he came through the curtain. Ring of Honor actually got word to Punk that Foley was there as Punk was about to head to the ring, so everything out there was completely improvised. So we were speculating earlier, you know, was Foley paid or not? Well, according to the news guys, not only was he not paid for this show, but apparently it was such a surprise that, like, it was, you know, a half hour's notice for all of this. Um, pretty wild. Yeah, I um, they're just good at promos. Um, I, I I thought the I thought that the whole thing was good, which we'll get to the end of it. But I thought this was super entertaining. I mean, they just seem to be in their element. Foley 
just seems I was really happy to be there. I actually love this a lot more than any other promo Foley had previously cut in ROH, honestly. It didn't seem as forced. I, I didn't like this promo quite as much as you, although I still thought it was fun. I, I And then I do have one, like, kind of nuts and bolts criticism, which is I do think at this point where Foley is l- just a guy that shows up in Ring of Honor, like – him saying, I'm going to use my power as the hardcore legend to give you this match that Ring of Honor hasn't booked and that Joe doesn't seem to want to give you. And the fact that it just – and granted, Punk still keeps sitting in the ring until Joe comes out and gives it to him. But – and I guess maybe this is one of those side effects from it being Joe – I mean Foley showing up half an hour before this promo and it being done on the fly. But Foley basically made it like I'm making this match official and – it seemed like one that wasn't good enough for punk. And two, again, I don't know in storyline what power Mick Foley has, you know, to make a match, but that, that's not a huge criticism. It's just kind of a weird little thing. But yeah, I, I think like you said, one thing that really comes through is Foley's genuine, like wanting to be there, you know, even showing the, the Liger picture with him. And it was interesting. Like, the way he frames it, like he said, like, I've been depressed lately. And this is, you know, he was still associated with WWE at this point. And he's like, well, Ring of Honor is going to cheer me up. And, and then shitting on some of the wrestlers in the company he's going back to. And granted, you know, he probably doesn't worry about the political power of Snitsky or Heidenreich. But, you know, shitting on them to build up guys like Punk and Joe. And even, you know, the fact that he was honest enough in front of that crowd to tell them, and apparently if you read the newsletters at the time, this was true. Like he was actively like trying to sell WWE to sign away punk and Joe. And so, you know, he could have very easily have done that and not told the live crowd so that they would have had no risk of booing him. And granted it didn't really backfire on him, but he was honest enough to like outright tell them, even though he's a face at this time, like, yeah, I, I'm trying to get these guys signed to a company you don't like. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. I mean, I just, I really just liked all of it. Like I, I, um, you're, you're right. Like obviously about the, um, you know, how does he have a chance to make matches? But like in the end he didn't. Right. So it's, yeah. you know, so I, I didn't really find that particularly problematic. I thought it was, I thought, I just really thought it was <laughs> cool. <laughs> Yeah. Um, next, we go backstage for intermission, and we find Gary Michael Capetta. He's joined by Nigel McGinnis. Gary says Nigel's match tonight was great, and uh, I wouldn't go that far. Um, Nigel starts to talk when Chad Collier almost immediately interrupts. He walks into frame. Collier wants to know why Gary is talking to this bozo. He uses the word bozo, who Chad says he had screaming like a turkey and got lucky that the time limit expired. The camera zooms into a little bruise that Chad has right below his eye. Uh, Chad says he's not here to complain or even ask for a rematch. No, he's here to ask Nigel to become a regular tag team partner with him, noting that they beat, quote, that scallywag, unquote, Mick Foley's hardcore team recently. Chad Collier Uh, is the most interesting promo I've ever heard in my life. Chad Collier might be wrestling vocabulary of 2004. In this promo alone, bozo, turkey, scallywag. I mean, no one does that like Chad Collier. Uh, That's actually what I'm planning on naming my son. (laughs) Scallywag. Bozo, turkey, scallywag. (laughs) Uh, Chad says that he and Nigel go together like PB&J, ham and eggs, and beer and girls. 
Uh, Chad wants them to challenge for the tag titles next month. Nigel chuckles, like kind of like, this guy's insane, and says, if they were good enough for Steamboat, they're good enough to take the belts. They slap hands, and a tag team is formed. Gary asks if it's okay if he throws it to Sugar Sean Price elsewhere backstage. Collier says he doesn't care, but then he grabs Gary, threatens to punch him, and he's screaming something intelligible. I couldn't make out what he said. Um, Chad Collier continues to be a special kind of joy all of his own. Um, pretty incredible. We then cut to CM Punk. He is still in the ring. It's during intermission. The house lights are up. He's talking on his phone. He's reading a book. He's CM, got a big chunk CM of Punk is a trooper because, like, he just went through a really difficult match where he took a lot of big bumps. And, like, instead of, like, icing himself in any way, he's just, like, sitting out there in front of everybody for, like, what, a half hour? <laughs> 20 minutes? Yeah, and one thing I forgot to mention, I should mention, like, one thing I've really noticed this year watching the match we talked about that he was in tonight and that the tag he and Ace were in against uh, Moth and Wintmer is, like, Punk is, you know, he's not known for being a guy doing, like, weapons gimmick matches or hardcore matches, but he's a real gamer. Like, when he does occasionally do them, like, he was taking the Uranagi backbreaker onto an open chair. He was taking ladder bump, like, bumps onto the ladder. Like, Punk, when he actually does have to do a no-DQ match... He will take as good as anybody in the match, like, and credit to him. And like you said, credit that he's then immediately did a lengthy promo and now just sitting intermission, like, probably, we probably would prefer to be in the back, you know, but cut to Sugar Sean Price, who sneaks a peek into the NBC's locker room. They are angry about what's transpired with Jay Lethal. Nana says he doesn't have time to talk to Sean, and by the end of the night, Ghana will have a statement on this. We cut back to the ring. Punk is still there. He's still reading, and he's still refusing to leave. Bobby Cruz just starts to introduce the next match, and ref Sean Hansen takes a peek at the copy of the Mick Foley children's book that Punk is reading. Seems very impressed. Um, out comes Special K, still with no entrance music, even though Izzy broke the losing streak, and the whole gimmick was until the losing streak was over, they wouldn't have their music, but the losing streak is over, but maybe they want their own win. Ring Crew Express come out later after. They're their opponents. Punk still won't leave, even with both teams and a ref in the ring. Everyone shakes hands around Punk in the center of the ring, which was a funny moment. The bell rings. Punk still refuses to leave. Punk grabs the mic and calls Ref Hansen an idiot. He says, I'll sit here all night if I have to. He starts to read part of Foley's children's book for the crowd. He uh, says the wrestler, the, all the wrestlers just stare at Punk as Punk describes part of the book where, uh, according to Punk, apparently Kurt Angle shits him his singlet because he's afraid of roller coasters. Um, finally, Joe's music hits. Joe comes out in a backwards hat and a t-shirt that says balls deep on it. Uh, big reaction for Samoa Joe. Punk says no one ever accused Joe of being quick, but he wonders where Joe's courage is. He's made Punk wait for so long tonight. Punk says he understands Joe's logic. He's had two, Punk has had two title shots, and he still doesn't have the gold around his waist, so why does he deserve a third? But Punk then says they're the irresistible force, meaning the immovable object. Punk says Joe answered his challenge just by coming into the ring, but he wants him to give him an answer in words. Joe says he'll make this short and sweet. Unlike every bitch fit Punk has every time he gets on the mic, the crowd chants bitch at this. Joe says, Joe says that Punk punked him out in front of the fans in front of his New Japan office, and even Mick Foley. 
Foley must be in the crowd. Well, he is in the crowd. We see in a second because Joe points past the hard cam when he's talking about Foley. And then we do get to see that Foley is actually way up in the rafters with some fans watching the rest of the show from there. Uh, Joe says if Foley had the guts to get his crippled ass back in the ring and work for a real promotion, his maybe his opinion would matter. So this is the start of the Mick Foley, Samoa Joe feud. Uh, the ca- camera cuts to Foley where, uh, where we see that he's in the crowd watching. Joe says that Punk wants his rematch and this city wants the rematch while Punk has the rematch. Punk extends his hand out for a handshake, but Joe instead responds with a forearm right to the head. Uh, Joe crouches over John, over Punk and he says the next time he calls Joe out, he better be ready for a fight. Uh, Joe leaves as Punk rubs his jaw and just smiles. Punk says he'll be ready to fight. Joe just better start working on his cardio. Then Punk finally leaves as well. And then finally... Oh, I also like Punk High Fives Done on his way out of the ring, which I thought was funny. And then finally we get the match, and that's the Ring Crew Express, Dunn and Marcos, defeat Special K, Angel Dust, and Dixie in 445 when Dunn pinned Angel Dust after he hit, hit was hit with a Marcos senton off the shoulders of Dunn. Um, I thought this was fine. I guess they did all action, but we've seen a bunch of big, dumb all action matches tonight with the four way spot fest and the big no DQ match. And even, you know, the, the lethal rave match was eight minutes of just action. And I felt like this in, in comparison, you know, there was some sloppiness here. Definitely. There was like a really bad tilt a whirl spot by Angel Dustin Dunn. There was a really bad and there was an enziguri by Marcos that was so bad that Gabe couldn't even call it an enziguri. He had to say, you know, like a knee to the back by Marcos. But still there was also, you know, some cool action. And they again, this was another match. The effort was really there. But, you know, it's a it's a it's a five minute match with these guys. It wasn't much. But no exactly. Matt, it, you- it was it was an, it was not much, but there were some cool spots. And I guess that's really all you can ask for in this position because they weren't really put in a position to do much more than that. So not, nothing that anyone will ever remember, but not terrible. It was your first match back from intermission. So exactly. after the match, Angel just argues with some members of Special K and he ends up shaking hands with Donna Marcos, despite the fact that we can hear some of the members of Special K screaming from ringside, like, don't do it. So they're playing up that part of the storyline, too, of the Special K breakup where some of Special K still wants to like not shake hands and d- not take things seriously. And Angel Dust and Dixie guys like that are on the side of, no, we, this is what we're going to do now. You know, this is the thing that's gotten us our great losing streak. We, we've got to keep going. And that brings us to the Ring of Honor pure title match. John Walters defeats Homicide, scored to the ring by Julia Smokes, by disqualification in 18 minutes, 35 seconds. When Julius Smokes attacks John Walters, Matt, I feel like we should almost talk about the match first. Everything that happens before what you already know we're going to talk about first, because it's kind of like a tale of two things. I'll just, before I throw it to you, I'll just say, I think, Matt, you know, this is 53 episodes. We've watched 53 Ring of Honor shows. We've rewatched them for this show. We've talked about a lot. This is one of the crazier and not in a good way things I think we've seen so far in 53 episodes. Yes, I agree. All right, so I will just talk about the match as though it's a normal match until it stops being a normal match. Um, so first of all, it is the first, I'm pretty sure, the first pure title match since Glory by Honor, um, which is um, surprising, you know, but um, that's five shows ago because um, uh, Walters wasn't on the Midwest shows. 
He was in a tag match at Midnight Express Reunion. He was in a tag match at the first night of Weekend of Thunder. So we have a pure title match. And this is also Julius Smokes' first match back, or first show back, since he was all over Midnight Express Reunion. So it's a it's a reunion of other sorts. Um, it's the John He's been bailed out for pissing on Fenway Park last night, Matt. Exactly. Um, early, right at the beginning of the match, when um, Walters goes to shake his hand, Homicide goes, this guy's from Boston. You think I'm going to shake his hand? And I'm just like, you don't shake anyone's hand. It's like your thing. Um, but <laughs> um, hey, whatever. Um, but And so there's actually a dueling chant at the beginning, because I guess Walter has his fans in uh, New Jersey, but not too many. <laughs> the crowd's not that into this. Um, but um, Punk early on predicts that Homicide will get disqualified because he can't handle the pure title rules. I wonder if that was what they were going to do, but who knows. Um, it's funny because Punk complained about how he had unfair rope breaks taken away from him by Ricky Steamboat months earlier, and Gabe was like, well, we were working out the kinks at the time, but now we have the rope break rule down pat. And I'm like, <laughs> I bet you don't. I bet you don't. Um so, early part of the match, it's fine. It's unmemorable. I guess the noteworthy thing is, like, Homicide tries playing by the rules for a while. Um, you know, like, Walters, he, he he does some cool stuff. He does a Royal Octopus attempt. Oh, no, no. Homicide, actually, does a Royal Octopus. Walters rolls through it and gets a bow and arrow. Then he starts working over Homicide's leg. Then he sort of ditches the leg. Um Homicide, um, baseball slides out and Walters hits a pescado on him right away. Then Walters randomly grabs a fan's Red Sox cap, puts it on for a second, then just tosses it on the floor. And I was like, that's not very nice. But then I realized that Homicide reacted by hitting a closed fist. So I'm like, I guess the cap was a plant too to show why Homicide lost his cool. Which so is many like, stunt grannies on this show, Matt. It's just so many plants, the way they taught us wrestling is about. A plant baseball hat. Who knew? <laughs> um, Walters, like, botched a backslide attempt, which I, um, which I um, <laughs> didn't think was possible. But, like, he, he, he goes to, like, just grab Homicide's, like, arms to pull it over, but he just, like, misses. <laughs> Like, I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, it happens to the best of us, but yeah, I, uh, yeah. I mean, everyone makes mistakes. It just, it was just, it was just an unusual botch. So I thought it was noteworthy. Um, um, but you know, it's not very fast paced. Homicide grabs Walter's knee, does an STF, but the crowd doesn't pop as though it's his, like a major move, even though Homicide has won several matches with an STF. Um, but Walters does use his first rope break to escape it. There is a cute spot where Walters is on the middle rope to do the 10 punches on Homicide, but he realizes closed fists are illegal and he gets down. I thought that was, I think that's kind of cute when they make, like, you know, when they draw attention to the rules and, like, the wrestlers, even the champion adapting to them. Um, Homicide does hit a bunch of closed fists while Smokes is distracting the ref. So the crowd does boo that. So they get into Homicide being a heel. Um, Walters tries to do this like fancy reversal and roll into a short arm scissors. Looks kind of awkward. And during this point, Smokes just yells for no reason, Mississippi burning, baby, Mississippi burning. <laughs> um, which, I mean, yeah, Mississippi burning. Um, it's a movie. Um, um, I want Smokes to just yell the names of like movies about like the struggles of of African Americans, like just but movies you wouldn't think even. I just I'm trying to think of good ones now, but I just want him to just randomly yell them out during Ring of Honor matches. Now. 
dude, where's my car? A time to kill, motherfucker. Time to kill. Although, actually, that, that that's way too appropriate, actually. I, I yeah. screwed it up already. I, I thought I I'm, it was sick, I'm sticking with dude, where's my car? <laughs> it works it works on a lot of levels. Um so um at one point during this punk is talking about how homicide is dumb, so he goes, I'm sure the Brooklyn education system wasn't all that great. And as a New Yorker I say, Hey, not cool, man. Um <laughs> but um while but then right at the moment that he says that Homicide slips off the top rope when going for a Rana on Walters and falls all the way to the floor. Superplex, and, actually. Oh, is that or what no, going? Ma- no, do you, actually, maybe it was going to be a top rope Rana. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, Homicide does do the top rope Rana, so that's what I assumed. Yeah. But it doesn't really matter, right? Because in the end, he slipped off the top rope, fell like over Walters, and all the way to the floor. And uh, this is where things change so that was the match this is basically just the insanity that happens after the match even though the match isn't over so so smokes run smokes and the ref run over immediately and check on him gabe and uh, and hansen uh run over too um i would thinking like are there any doctors around like but <laughs> but uh turner starts counting homicide out and gabe says it, on commentary, not the Gabe who's there, uh, but he says it could be a very dis, dis uh, it could be a very dangerous situation if he gets back in the ring, and I'm like, you think? Um, so they act like Homicide's gonna lose, but Smokes actually rolls Homicide back into the ring, and the crowd cheers, and there's a big Homicide chant. But of course, we know now this is a terrible idea. I feel like even if you're sort of like in the let's work through an injury thing, if you have to be thrown back into the ring. Maybe don't, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I don't want to judge anybody, but because, you know, hindsight is, t- is twenty twenty, of course. But the crowd chants homicide. They're all going nuts. And uh, Gabe says, this is all pride right here. And I'm like, is it or is it his not his choice? I can't tell. Is this abuse? I'm not even sure. No, I'm, I'm not, I'm sure even now homicide would not think it was abuse. So I don't want to put words into his mouth. I'm sure he's still fine with it. Um, or maybe that is me putting words into his mouth. Maybe he thinks it's fucked up. What do I know? Um, but at the time, he took some water, shoved the ref away, ref away, woke himself up, but the ref still put up the X. Um, so the pit bulls came out too. Homicide was insisting he could go. Um, uh, so this is horrifying. I will say it's probably more interesting to watch in retrospect than the match was, You know, yeah. know knowing that Homicide wasn't maimed by this but it was horrifying punk says he has no sympathy for homicide because he attacked him from behind which okay um the crowd boos walters ddt yes walters hits a ddt on the concussed homicide he gets two then he hits a hurricane ddt and homicide (laughs) just like blocks the count he grabs the ref's arm to stop him from counting homicide escapes the suplex attempt goes for a pile driver and gets an and he goes, for, and he's, uh, Walters is going to go for a slingshot, but Homicide blocks that. Walters does a springboard powerbomb into a sharpshooter. There's a please don't t- tap chant. And I imagine this played very differently in 2004. I'm thinking now when I watch it of Jimmy Jacobs versus BJ Whitmer in 2006, which hopefully we'll get to someday. Um, Homicide is actually at this point uses his first rope break off the sharpshooter. Um, 
Walters turns it into a Boston Crab. So you can see there's a lot going on even after this injury. Walters now turns it into a Boston Crab right near the rope. So Homicide uses his second rope break. And then he just tells Smokes to come in for the DQ. And I, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to make of any of this. But it wasn't pretty. Um, they would never have restarted that match now, I hope. Um, but the match, I mean, to be honest, it wasn't very good before the injury either. It was awkward, um, kind of slow. Um, the injury makes it insane. Just completely insane. Just imagine that. Clearly, the guy has a bad concussion. And they did all that stuff, including DDTs, power bombs, Like, I, he gets thrown into the ring. I am just befuddled. Uh, it was strange to watch. What do you think? <laughs> um, there's a lot to say about this. I guess first I should almost get out of the way the, the what I thought of the match before that because like you like you said I, that's kind of like the least interesting and important part of this. But it was the bulk of the match. I mean, um, I I felt like the the the, the match. Sometimes there's match like. I, I always like when Homicide gets to show off his mat work, and I actually thought, although Walters had a couple of the flashier mat moves, like that bridging leg leg lock he does, which looks really cool, I actually thought Homicide looked better on the mat than the pure champion, both in terms of like who was getting the best of the other guy, but also just how comfortable and cool their mat work looked. But I would say the match like it it was it was average like it was it was the kind of match where you could tell they hadn't kicked into high gear yet and there are sometimes matches where you you watch for like 10 minutes and you go all right this action's been perfectly like very mediocre but if it's a strong final like 5 to 10 minutes this match could be great and you could say well the first 10 is just setting it up or if it's like a boring final 5 to 10 minutes you could say well this whole match was kind of blah and not good at all but it felt like just as they were starting to maybe kick into that next gear that would determine how good this match could be, you know, after the setup and the, the mat work is when the awful homicide, you know, I don't even know what, ex- I mean, I don't know if Walter slipped first or Walt or homicide slipped first, but, um, you know, Walters is able to grab, they're both on the top turnbuckle. Walters is able to grab the ropes. And then we just, you just see homicide fall out of frame. He falls behind the apron and we don't see his landing, but you just hear a thud. And usually in wrestling, when a guy is doing a move from the top to the floor, even purposefully, you don't want to hear a thud. And that's what you hear. And yeah. So uh, to sum up my thoughts about the match, not that good. Disappointing. I guess average, I would say at best that was, but it's hard to judge because it, you know, was setting up something. But th- my one other problem with that is there was lots of moments in this match before they got to, uh, the crazy thing that will de- define this match where this is a problem with some, um, pure wrestling matches where the the people involved often don't seem to have a good handle on the rules and all the, the variations. Like, um, at one point, uh, I think homicides in a, in a, in a hold and he just walks through the ropes and to the apron while he's in the hold. And then that breaks it. But they're like, that's not a rope break. And, and then later on, you know, homicide punches John Walters and, uh, Punk is like, that's a rope break. And Gabe has to tell him, no, you actually get to punch once. And then the second punch is a rope break. And then later on, like Punk is confused by that. Uh, later, Walters punches homicide in the stomach, but we're told punches in the stomach 
don't count as, as, as don't deserve warnings, just punches in the head. Like it's just the rules for the pure title stuff. It's all like you need a goddamn flow chart to keep track of what's allowed and what isn't, even though technically it's three simple rules. But anyway, okay, I'll just shut up, get to the, on um, the homicide thing. It's tough because. I, 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 like, like you said, you don't want to judge people in the moment, but I'll get to a larger thing, a lesson behind that in a second. But first, I mean, this was frightening. This was one of the most frightening things. Like, I've, we've seen, you watch wrestling long enough, you see guys have concussions. It's a sad reality. But a lot of times in wrestling, I think you see a concussion where a guy gets rocked and they're kind of out of it for a move or two. But just like in a fight, sometimes you guys get a concussion where clearly they should stop. But after they like kind of rest for 20, 30 seconds, they, they're kind of back to normal, at least functionally normal for, from outside appearances. Like this wasn't that kind of concussion. This was, Homicide was lying out there with Julius Smokes and a ref hovering over him for quite a while. And when he comes in, like he's still holding his head in pain for quite a while. He's getting water. And then even there's, there's a moment when he stands up, like there's a look on Homicide's face I've never seen before or since where it looks like he's almost crying. It might just be pain, but like, he looks, it's like a concerning look. Like he, the way you've seen this guy look all like, it's just, and I saw people in the crowd, like who wrote live reports that you could tell like the lights were on, but nobody was home that he had that kind of look in his eyes. I, you know, obviously you don't get to see a lot of great angles from the DVD of his face at all times, but you know, this was not some guy that was recovering quickly. This was a guy that was seriously screwed up. And then to see him take multiple bumps, and I realized, yes, DDTs, when you do it right, you're not actually taking a head bump. But he was still – every bump he was taking was like a jarring bump, you know, where you're lying on your back or you're, or protecting your head, but you're still like taking a snap to it. In some ways, a power bomb might even be more dangerous to the head. Yeah, and um, so before I get into kind of my larger lesson, Matt, first I want to ask you – in a way, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't speculate, but – curiosity i can't help like my thoughts what were that they didn't want homicide to continue the match because gabe comes out and like there's a, a crazy moment where where homicide comes back in the ring and gabe is still staying on the apron for a few moments watching while homicide's trying to restart the match and gabe does not look like happy like he looks concerned even like he's like worried about what's about to happen and and also like there was a moment where Shortly after uh, Gabe comes out with Ref Hansen, like they talk to uh, Todd Sinclair, who is the the real ref in the match, and uh, he starts the twenty count. Because remember, in Ring of Honor, it doesn't have countouts, but the pure title matches do. So they could have just done a countout finish. And it's almost like someone told him, and he had ignored the count up to this point to talk to Homicide. It's like someone told him just count him out. At that point. When it gets near to the end, all of a sudden, Julie Smokes, who had stopped screaming and had broken character to talk to Homicide, goes right back into character. He's like, get in, get in. And he throws Homicide in. And then, again, like you pointed out, Todd Sinclair talks to Homicide. He keeps talking to him. He even makes the X at this point in the match to the back. I don't know why. And, and um, Homicide pushes Todd Sinclair away. And then they start the match again. And then they, they do the few moves you describe. They do the two submission holds and then smokes comes in the ring, which I, I had to, for the DQ, which I have to think if, 
if they really were trying to finish the match, that was not a satisfying end. That was not what was planned. To me, just the vibe I got was that Homicide wanted to keep doing the match, and eventually somebody, I don't know whether it was Smokes, I don't know where who it was, made the call that, like, we just have to fucking stop this. And it was too late. You know, it shouldn't have been allowed to go on that long. But it didn't feel like – nothing about this felt like it was going according to plan. Um, my read of the finish was a little bit different, but you might be right. I mean, I'm just speculating as much as anybody. Um, I, my, my read was that homicide just at a certain point was just like, fuck, I can't take it anymore. You know, and that, that's when smokes came in, like kind of at his behest. Um, but I could be wrong on that, obviously. I was, I'm just guessing. Um, yeah, I don't know how it went down. I don't know if homicide told smokes to throw him in the ring. I, it was, it was, you know, it's completely hard to tell. I don't, I, I just don't know. I just couldn't tell. And, you know, I, I really didn't like seeing Homicide take those moves, but I do feel for John Walters even because he, he's in an awful position where all of a sudden this guy who's clearly fucked up and out of it is thrown back in the ring and people are just acting like, okay, the match is going to restart. Like, what is he supposed to do? You know, I, I, also, I, did, this is like, not, I, I mean, this was not unheard of in wrestling at the time for people to wrestle through this stuff. Like, it just wasn't like I, um, you know, it's hard to, you know, you don't want to make excuses, but like. This was the mentality. But uh, again, I want to go back to like, um, we've seen guys with concussions before. I have rarely seen a match where a guy is this fucked up and the match basically stops for like three minutes. And even after that, they're still like, all right, let's go back. I mean, the one thing I can think of is Lesnar at WrestleMania 19. Yeah. Where he lands on his head and then they kind of like do like an impromptu finish where he still wins. But then you can like, you look at him while Angle is like giving him that hug at the end. And he just looks like, like there's no, like absolutely there's nobody home. You know, that, that's one example that I could think of. It's not, it's not quite the same, but you know, you could tell he was really, really, really messed up. But that was also the main event of WrestleMania. Like, I don't know. So, um, the big thing I want, I I thought a lot about this. So this is kind of the lesson I took from this and I don't want to seem too self-important. We just do a a little rinky dink ring of honor podcast for our personal amusement. I'm, I love that people listen to it and any, that anyone at all. I mean, we we always talked about when we started, we wanted, you know, 15 people listen that we'd be happy with that. And we've gotten way more than 15. So, but I do know that, you know, some wrestling promoters and wrestlers, I don't know how many do listen to us. We know that, you know, like Gabe Sapolsky has plugged the show and Keith Lipinski, one of the big guys behind one of the hottest indies in the U.S., AAW, has been a guest on the show as well as a listener. And so if I could say something, I would just say, like you said, I kind of don't blame people for doing the wrong thing when something wrong happens and you're not expecting it. But I guess the lesson I've learned is I think every wrestling promotion should have a contingency plan that everyone is aware of before every show for if a few things happen, if a guy gets a, a concu- an obvious concussion, if a guy gets a serious neck injury, if a guy has a heart attack, like these are things where no one should be guessing and panicking and scrambling to go what to do. There should be like a set protocol of if this happens, we're doing this. Like, because you could tell, like, there was people scrambling to that ring and trying to figure out what to do. And and also, like, a lot of times people will say, oh, well, the wrestlers, you know, the wrestler wanted to finish. And he'd be angry if we didn't let him finish. But what I would say to that is wrestlers, one, sometimes are crazy. But two, when they're really keyed up on adrenaline in the middle of the match and now they're all, their head is all foggy from a concussion, 
you know, sometimes you have to save people from themselves and sometimes they're not thinking in their right mind. You can't just say, well, even if hom- we don't know if homicide wanted to do it or not, but I would guess he probably did based on the kind of the way he behaved. But even if he did, I would just say, I'm sorry, but this is my promotion. You know, like you're done. Like to be, I'm, to I'm not be, to be fair, this. to be fair, I think now with all the talk about concussions over the past decade plus, I feel like most wrestling promotions, at least in America, would do exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think that's changed a lot. Although I also do think we knew concussions were bad even in 2004. But I, I just feel like it's not just I'm not just picking on this event because we've seen like wrestlers who have broken their necks, you know, and guys then moving the person with their neck broken or people who have had heart attacks. And, you know, that Lucha show where people felt like maybe they didn't do, maybe that person's life could have been saved if they had prepared differently and reacted to it better. Like, I believe you should prepare for the worst scenarios because people do get hurt really bad in wrestling. Like even, even the Owen Hart thing where, he fell from Kemper Arena and died, and people said, and the show went on. People said, "Well, you can't blame WWE because they had to make a call on five seconds." I kind of feel like if you're doing a stunt where a guy falls sixty feet, you know, from a, the roof of a building on a little bungee cord, as morbid as it is, you should probably have a plan for what if, God forbid, something bad happens. You know, and, and to me, that's the lesson of this stuff. It's not just. It's not oh. How dare the, this match continue or all that? It's more every promotion. I think more promotions now do have plans, but every promotion should have plans for if someone hurts their neck, if someone has a heart attack, if someone has a concussion. Like it shouldn't, yeah. you shouldn't have to guess because at, when you're in the middle of the panic, yeah, it's going to be tough to figure out what the hell to do. But if you have a plan, then it's easier. Yeah, I think with the concussion thing, I think most promotions know, at least for liability purposes, they're going to stop the match. Right, they're gonna they're gonna protect the wrestler from themselves. You know what I mean? Like like you yeah. said, um, but only because in wrestling concussions were such a topic of discussion for a long time. Yeah. But keep in mind, you know, there were been there were matches in ROH for a few years after this where guys are basically intentionally concussing themselves. So they did not learn the lesson just yet. I think it took Chris Benoit to get people to learn that lesson. Yeah. And even after that, it was kind of slowly. It, absolutely it's just um it, it was it, it was weird it was very compelling but it was also hard to watch this segment it, you know and it's just wait till we get to that jimmy jacobs match man just he, wait till we get to that match yeah and again i realize this is a hard thing for promoters like when i when i say this and i'm almost lecturing i realize a lot of these wrestlers will probably like i imagine it, there was probably a chance that hom- i mean yet homicide was shoving away the ref who was checking on out of concern and you know there's probably a lot of wrestlers that we know brian danielson you know he famously in wwe had a match where he got his rocked with randy orton and they stopped the match and danielson went backstage and got into like a fight with triple h for him stopping the match but sometimes as as a promoter you kind of have to be bigger than the wrestlers you have to be like no you know even though you're you know there's such a machismo culture culture in wrestling that you finish the match, you know, you tough it out. Sometimes you have to be like, you're not in your right head right now. We we have to protect you. I, I mean, and, maybe I'm naive, but I really do think that at least the major promotions are kind of on the same page as you at this point. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I think there are more, but um, 
Matt, this is a little tit, some news we had from the show, which might make it even come off worse for how bad a state homicide was in. This is Mike Johnston. He wrote, Homicide had gone into the match after taking a bad hit to the head the night before and smashed his head hard on the canvas during the match. They went to do a superplex, and Homicide ended up falling to the floor. The referee began counting him out, but he somehow got back in at 19. Homicide was obviously in no condition to continue, but then jumps right back into the match and takes a DDT. He then backs off again as Ring of Honor officials tried to talk to him, and you could see in his face that the lights were on, but he wasn't able to go. The crowd realized it immediately and quieted it down, concerned. After they went to the finish, the Havana Pitbulls came out and they laid out Walters, but the crowd seemed more concerned with Homicide, who amazingly walked out under his own power. I believe he he went to the hospital and hopefully he will be okay once he's rested up as it was a really scary situation. One had to feel for him as it was obvious he still wanted to go, but that would have been the worst thing he could have done for himself at that point. And then the Pro Wrestling Torch wrote, Homicide suffered a concussion on November 6th during his match with John Walters. Homicide has recovered and is still scheduled to make his dates next weekend. So pretty insane, like to add to the, what we just already just saw on the show, that one, apparently he had taken a bad shot to the head the night before, took another one during the match before the fall, and then, despite all of that, makes his dates the next weekend. Yeah, see, that's something that I feel like a lot of people did not think about, even in 2004, which is how long you need to wait to, before you realize you're you're actually recovered from a concussion. I think actually Chris Nowinski, of all people, is one of the people that really made people realize just how much that's important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of science has come out now saying that the secondary concussion, you know, sometimes – and people just thought that, oh, like obviously the more concussions you have, the, the worse it is, which is true. But also it's about – if you suffer like a second jarring blow to the head while you haven't fully recovered from a prior concussion or blow to the head, that's really like makes the pro- the damage exponentially worse. So it's not just that homicide got a concussion. It's that he suffered a blow to the head, then took another blow to the head, then took a third really bad blow to the head and then was working shortly thereafter. Like that's probably where the real damage comes in more than just one bad tumble. Like, like Bret Hart, you know, Bret Hart was a guy who, you know, suffered a bad concussion. And then they said the real damage was he kept wrestling for weeks after that, you know, which is probably, I don't know if his career would have changed if he had, if he had actually rested for a month. But back then the thought was you just wrestle through it. And that wasn't, that wasn't that long before this. So yeah, times definitely have changed. Cause like you said, I don't think that would happen today, but we go to the ring of honor tag title match, the Havana Pitbulls of Ricky Reyes and Rocky Romero. With Julius Smokes, he was back out with them, defeated B.J. Whitmer and Dan Moff in 16 minutes, 13 seconds, when Reyes pinned Moff with a small package. Um, this match exceeded my expectations, but I guess I should tell you how low my expectations were, where I would say this was like three stars, like or three and a quarter. I felt like um, the Pitbulls did their usual stuff, which is... It's fine, but something's missing. I felt like Moth and Whitmer really had their working shoes on. They were trying pretty hard. They were even breaking out things. They either don't break out at all or they do occasionally. Like they do the uh, – where Whitmer – where um, no, Moth puts someone in the figure four and then Whitmer comes off the top with a frog splash. They don't do that all the time, but they brought it out here. Um, they, they just did cool so – it just felt like they were they – were, going they were wrestling like hey this is the semi-main event on a big show where 
I felt like the pit bulls kind of gave you their same old, same old, but still I thought it was, it was good action all the way through. Like they brought out, um, Dan Moff did the people's elbow, but instead he finished it with a senton. They, uh, Moff and Whitmer did the heart attack clothesline. Like, you know, just some, just some cool little things like that. And I, I did feel like the pit bulls also, tried to heal it up a little bit more. So add a little bit more color than they had been recently, but the, the, the crowd, they weren't absolutely 100% dead, but they were pretty dead as far as this night goes for this match. Occasionally when I thought, when I was about to say they're completely dead, they would maybe perk up for one big spot, but they were kind of in the death spot. You know, they're the main, they're right after a crazy traumatic thing, right before the main event that everyone came to see it's a long tag match with no storyline behind it between teams that aren't that over. It was just a bad, it was a, it was a fine match in a bad spot. I I would say. Yeah. I kind of agree with you completely. Um, because I, you know, the memory is, and I think the reason they booked this match on this night is because, at the ultimate endurance match, where it came down to Whitmer and Moff against the Pitbulls, the crowd was going nuts for Whitmer yeah. and Moff to win the titles. And they were not this time. And, like, yeah, this match exceeded my expectations because these teams haven't been having great matches lately, but it still wasn't that good. Um, like, it was, like, I think three stars is pretty good. It was a basic good match. Um, like, um, it's funny though, like, when, um, when uh Moth did the um people's senton, Gabe no sold it completely, did not even acknowledge that was what was going on. So I guess Gabe doesn't like the rock or didn't at the time. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's the only thing I could think of. Another funny commentary moment was when um so Whitmer went to tag Moth. It seemed like the tag was actually made. But Smokes pulled Moth off the apron and the ref acted like the tag was never made because I guess the Rottweilers were distracting him. So Punk just, I guess, must have already happened. So Punk, like, twists the knife on commentary. He goes, oh, he should be fired. It's like, <laughs> man, that's fucked up because he was actually fired. Like, And after the match, he again says, like, after some other thing, like, ref Hansen should be fired. Like, he, he goes out of his way twice. And knowing that the commentary is usually recorded weeks afterwards or – a little bit afterwards, I you know I think Ref Hansen worked into early 20, 2005, but like, I mean, Punk, Punk had to know what was, or he was at least campaigning for this to happen. Yeah, Punk was being catty right there. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, the, the match itself, you know, there were some good, there were some good moves. Um, Moff got a hot tag at one point that was kind of botchy, like he almost messed up a backdrop on Romero, but he eventually got him over. Moffat usually does better hot tags than that. At one yeah. point, um, uh, Moff had a figure four or was in a figure four, um, or no, excuse me. He had Reyes in a figure four and then Whitmer frog splashed Reyes at the same time. Um, which, you know, you don't see Whitmer do too many frog splashes. So he was pulling out some extra stops. Um, as far also, um, they did a, a spot where, um, Reyes and Whitmer took turns doing, rolling German suplexes. Reyes got a lot more on Whitmer. Reyes actually got six German suplexes on Whitmer, which is a lot of German suplexes. Um, and, and the crowd was shockingly quiet for that. I felt bad. Like they were, you know, to give, do that many German suplexes and the crowd was making almost no noise. Yeah. See, this is how I felt about the, um, 
you know, the, the no holds barred match. I thought the crowd was actually, other than the main event, which we'll get to, I thought the crowd was pretty quiet all night. And I, you know, I blame the possibility of, um, that crappy finish in the opener. But also, of course, this crowd just sat through a horrifying injury in front of them too. So there are a lot of reasons, but I did not think the crowd is very good on this show for most of it. Um, I couldn't tell if the finish was clever or just too cheap. You know what I mean? Like, just- yeah, I, I should I should have mentioned what the finish was. I apologize just before you go into it. So, um, they basically do the twin magic finish where the ref is distract. Like, um, first, well, actually, I hated this finish because it's a uh, moth hits the the uh, burning hammer and then smokes does and he's done this before. During the three count, when he's up, the ref's about to hit three, he just pulls the ref out of the ring. And the ref does not DQ him, even though Ring of Iron in these last few shows has talked about how, you know, we're sticking, we're, we're paying attention to the rules again, blah, blah, blah. So while he's arguing, Reyes, like, uh, Romero and Reyes switch places. They basically do like the twin magic, like you can't tell which of one of us is which. And Moth, who is also arguing with the ref and stuff, just turns around into a small package and loses. Yeah. I, I don't, I did I don't, I definitely didn't hate it as much as you, but I couldn't tell if I liked it either. <laughs> like it was just like, eh, they're getting too clever with some of these finishes on this show. I think that's what I think of. Cause ROH generally just does like straight ahead finishes. And there were a few on this show that were just like, what are you doing? But maybe Gabe said, uh, the fin- the main event's going to be such a crowd pleaser that we can do some shady finishes on this show and get away with it. And send the crowd home happy. That must have been the calculation, honestly. Yeah, I think Gabe sometimes, or even in the matches he books, like I felt like the night one of Weekend of Thunder was a pre-stacked card. If you look at the card for this night, like there aren't a lot of really like sexy from like on paper matchups other than the main event. The street fight, I think, sounds big on paper. Yeah. Even then, though, it's a, a rod of trunk isn't that big yet. A steel is a steel, but it's still intriguing. But like, Homicide and Walters, like Walters isn't that over, but but Wal- Homicide's probably one of the best, biggest possible names they can book against them. But then you think like semi-main event is, is uh, BJ Whitmer and Dan Moff versus the Rottweilers. And this was another weekend where, you know, the Rottweilers on a huge weekend for Ring of Honor where they had big shows, big crowds, got to semi-main event in lengthy matches both nights and at best, both performances are like, eh, it's good, but not particularly great. Like, I think that Gabe treated both of these teams like they were better and more over than they ever were. I, I think you made a great point where you ta- you brought up, and that's another point I forgot, like um, how the last time they were in New Jersey, and we've talked in the past about how Gabe would book not just show to show, but from the last time of the, they had been in the city to the next time where, yeah, people were, were, and we talked about how we were, I, at least I was shocked that like the crowd felt on that night, like they really wanted to see last time they were in Jersey to see Moth and Whitmer with the tag titles. And so this match, they even referenced the end of that match where at the very start of the match, Romero hits the jumping, uh, Romero hits the jumping knee to Whitmer, but Whitmer kicks out and the commentary to their credit, like points out like that reference. They're like, you know, that's what finished them last time they were here. And I I think the the thing I get from this is like, I realize the, the pit bulls came in with a bunch of hype and a lot of wrestlers respected them and they wanted to really give them a run. But looking back at both the reaction 
Moth and Whitmer got the last time they faced him in New Jersey. And then the reaction the night before this, uh, Evans and Strong got when the fans thought they had won the match. It felt like both of those times were probably the time to take the belts off these guys. Like either of those, I think, would have been much bigger than what actually happened. Yep, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, it's just sometimes you miss your window. And uh, I think that, like, this is a hindsight booking because we kind of know that these, you know, the pit walls just kind of don't achieve much in ring of honor. But I mean, I think if you knew then what you know, now you absolutely would have changed the titles on one of those two matches. But yeah. Um, by um, the way, at the very end of this match, you see Alice in danger coming out and then they just cut away immediately. So I do not, they don't show us what she does. And I can actually give you the note from the PW torch live report. After the match, Alice in danger came out again to harass Moth and Whitmer and they chased her through the crowd in the process, nearly murdering me, this fan writes. But <laughs> so again, three hour show, they had to cut something out. And this was one of the sacrifices. No, it's, cornet it's, letter. it's just funny that they let it show up on the screen. Like you see her coming out and you're like, Oh, Alice in danger. This is part of the angle. And then it's like, Nope. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that brings us finally to the main event, the dream tag match. Jushin, Thunder Liger, and Samoa Joe defeated Brian Danielson and Loki in 21 minutes, 18 seconds when Liger pinned Danielson with the Liger bomb. Matt, before I throw it to you, a couple notes to set, set this up. Um, the Ring of Honor Newswire, they had, they set up the reasoning for Liger being, Joe being Liger's partner by saying that Liger picked Joe because of the respect he has for the Ring of Honor world champion. So I like that they even tried to give a bit of storyline, even though you really didn't need to, just to at least give the reasoning, like, this is why, um, Gabe also wrote Danielson, then picked Joe's arch rival low key to neutralize the world champ. So like, they're saying that it's a reaction to Liger's move. Um, the observer wrote, that Liger got a reaction comparable, if not better, than the Great Muda did last year in Ring of Honor. Crowd was into every Liger spot, as much of the crowd are tape collectors who have been watching him forever. Um, Mike Johnson said this was easily one of the most fun matches in Ring of Honor company history and a great moment to watch unfold. It was a rare match that lived up to and surpassed the hype going in. And then the final note before I give, get your thoughts, Matt, is The Observer wrote, It was nearly midnight before the main event even started. So on a night where already we talked about the crowd maybe wasn't at their best, they had to wait almost till midnight before this match even started. So long night for the fans. Matt, what'd you think? Well, wait till they get to the next Rexplex show. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, so I was I haven't been uh, very kind to this crowd in terms of their reactions, but it seems like they were saving all their energy for this because they were great for this match. They were so excited. Um they, their streamer game was better than Boston's the night before. You know, Liger got a lot of streamers when he entered and a lot of streamers when they did their introductions in the ring. Um, some dumbasses kept throwing streamers long after the, like, streamer yeah. shower, which I don't know why people do that, but it was annoying to me 15, 16 years later. Um, also, another note before I get to the match, Julius Smokes, his third match in a row. Um, give this guy a break. Um, also how, how common is it? How many times in history can you think of a major show with two tag team matches in a row to close the show? I can't think of too many. Um, but this is one of them. That's interesting. Yeah. Especially like, maybe you could say a a show like that made it with a war games, but like two straight tag team, two on two matches. Yeah. Not even with gimmicks, you know, just regulation rules. Yeah. Both with Julius smokes. Um, but, um, no, I, I, 
I love this. I, you know, I didn't think it was a match of the year or anything, but it was just so good. Like so much fun. Everything was, you know, everybody was doing a great job. The crowd was so excited. Like, you know, it was, you know, there, there is even some good story elements. Dragon was being a heel. Like he was, he was just like the night before. And you could tell, like, just like I said, for the last match, he was having a great time and he still was, he was showing his, you know, he was doing his Rick Rude hip swivel while he has Joe in the Indian deathlock and then he flips off the crowd. Um, they start off the match teasing that Joe and Loki are going to fight and the crowd's so excited. And then Key immediately tags out at the last second before locking up. And both announcers call Loki a bitch because that's what you did in 2004. <laughs> um, um, but the crowd is very excited for Liger versus Key also because it's the first time they've ever gone against each other. Um, he does tilt a world, Liger does tilt a world backbreakers to Key and Dragon. Key teases a dive, or, or excuse me, Liger teases a dive but does a handspring. Then Joe topes Danielson and Liger hits a somersault on Loki off the apron. Then they, they pose in the ring and the crowd's going nuts. Um, you know, Liger does all his big spots, or a lot of them anyway. He does, he does the surfboard on Loki. Um, um, then Joe and Key, they get into the ring. They do some spots, um, like Joe does a big delayed vertical suplex, but they definitely hold back a lot with the Joe versus Loki stuff. Like, you don't feel like you got a taste of what a Joe versus Loki match would be by watching this match. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I felt like the one sequence you got where Joe tags in the middle and he's like, the intensity immediately goes up and you see the chemistry, but there wasn't a lot of back and forth, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, for a while they actually, you know, you have, um, Dragon and Key take over as like a really good heel tag team, like cutting off the ring, quick tags back and forth. Um, you know, Dragon does all of his work right in the corner, his corner, which is a good strategy. They even do like the assisted abdominal stretch with Loki pulling Dragon's arm. And, um, you know, like, um, you know, there's some other spots where like Loki is like pull, is pulling his arm for leverage. And, and, like, I just, I think that's so much fun. Um, it's, it's kind of weird. It's kind of surprising that Liger plays Ricky Morton here, but he does for a while. Um, like at one point, Loki has Liger in a head scissors and he yells at Joe, like, come in here, you fucking fake champ. Like really, <laughs> really building up that match that never happens. Um, yeah. Dragon does um, another airplane spin on Liger. And then unfortunately, after the spin, he walks into Samoa Joe, who forearms him and basically knocks him down so much that he just like goes all the way to the other corner and tags in Loki. Um <laughs> So Loki does a lot of like forearm grinding in Liger's face. He does that a lot. And while he's doing it, Julius Smoke says, I hate your Japanese ass, cocksucker. Um, <laughs> because again, only Julius Smokes. There's, he is one of a kind, isn't he? Um, like how many people could say I called Jushin Liger a cocksucker during a pro wrestling match? Like I think even the announcer, I think Punk or someone says something like he doesn't say cocksucker but he's like did julia smokes just say something to, to Liger? like it's it's like even watching it back like days or weeks later like it's like holy shit yeah i mean i'd say in english uh julia smokes is the only one who's ever done that <laughs> um, um uh loki goes for his springboard kick but liger moves hits the fisherman buster and finally tags in joe after a long heat segment and Joe goes right for the boot scrapes, the running boot. Now he knocks Key all the way to the outside. He hits the ole ole kick on Loki and knocks the guardrail clean off. And he's just going nuts. He's screaming. And then he has Liger hit the second ole ole kick on Loki. 
And then, like Joe and Lady Loki, they do have their their sequence in the ring that ends with a Joe power slam. And this is the second big crucifix thing where uh, Loki goes for a crucifix on Joe, but he can't get him over, so he kicks him in the back of the head and hits a big clothesline. Um, and now the match is just like you know you get to the finish and it's like all big moves. Danielson comes in, takes down Joe with his big European uppercut off the middle rope for two. Joe leg sweeps Danielson and tags Liger in, who just goes nuts on palm strikes with both guys, and they're selling it huge. Um, Loki and Danielson do a double team springboard kick with Dragon holding Liger up in like the heart attack spot, which I thought was really cool. Liger gets a quick victory roll for two. Danielson avoids a palm strike and like grabs his arm and goes right into the cattle mutilation, which Joe breaks up with a senton. Then Loki immediately goes for a shining wizard, but Joe ducks and Loki comes back from behind and hits the kick to the back of the head, which is like the black magic. Yeah. Then Liger misses a palm strike on Loki, but Key grabs his arm and gets like an octopus style, like arm bar thing. Uh, Liger avoids the Phoenix splash, but Loki rolls through and hits like a, hits a big capo kick. Then Loki hits a, I will say a really beautiful Phoenix splash on Liger. Just perfect. And he puts Danielson on top for two, but Joe breaks it up. Um, then <laughs> uh, Danielson gets a suplex on Liger with a bridge for two. He gets in the ref's face and then goes to German suplex Liger, but Joe hits Danielson with an enzigiri. And then Liger hits the palm strike and a brain buster, but Key makes the save. Loki knocks Joe off the apron and Key holds Liger so Danielson can slap him. Then Danielson goes for a roaring forearm, but Liger moves and Danielson forearms Loki. Then Liger Kapo kicks Loki. Joe lariats Danielson. Liger hits the Liger bomb on Danielson, and that's the that's the win. It was very hard to keep up with those last six or seven minutes. They were really exciting. I thought this was better than the night before, honestly. Like possibly significantly better. I thought it was a damn good match. Like just a great match, honestly. Um, match of the weekend, easily memorable, great atmosphere, super fun. Everybody in their element. Everybody working hard. Can't really, don't really have any complaints. Just an excellent match, Matt. I, uh, I, I, I think I like this match a little less than you, but yet I, I was scared because I thought I was going to say I actually think I like this match better than Liger Danielson from the night before. So I am really glad that that if, if it's a controversial opinion in any way, at least I'm not alone because I completely agree. I think this is better than Liger versus Danielson. I think I described Liger and Danielson. I think the night on the last show as like. It felt like a house show match, but between, you know, one of the best wrestlers alive and an all-time legend. And I feel like this is kind of the same way. It had that same kind of feel, but it was better, I felt like, because there was just, like, more toys to play with. Like, I got to see Liger, instead of Liger interacting with just Danielson, I got to see him interact with Danielson and Loki. And, you know, I got to see him team with Joe and you know, work with him and even do an Olay kick. Like there was just more toys in the toy box for Liger to play with here. I actually felt like Liger's performance might've been a little bit better the night before, just because he was called on to do more in a singles match. He even broke out the top rope brain buster where here he just uses the Liger bomb, which um, Danielson kicked out of. But I think that's again, because he had to share the spotlight with three other guys instead of just one opponent. But he was, you know, very good in this. Obviously, it, again, not a classic match, but these matches weren't about having classic matches. They were about just having really fun matches for crowds that were really excited to see this legend. They probably thought they'd never get to see in America again. And, um, 
I like you said, I really liked like, like this is an interesting thing where we've talked about how low key as a heel has really cut down on the flashiness. And I know on the last show you were like, you were saying that you were really interested in seeing like, did we get old do, in a big match like this? Do we get old low key where he breaks out everything or do we get like still a continuation of heel low key where he's much more grounded and not very flashy to be a heel. And I feel like he kind of gave us a little bit of both. Like for most of the match, he was doing just more non flashy gritty stuff like the forearm grinds you mentioned, or, you know, like you mentioned, they're doing really old school, like eighties healing here with the, the, the partner assisted uh, abdominal stretch behind the rest back. Like that's as old school and basic as you get, but it was cool. But I feel like, so key does all of that, but then he still does like the top rope, double stomp, the, the Phoenix splash, the, uh, the black magic, the like the springboard kicks like he does do more of the flashy stuff than we've seen from him recently in matches with with uh lethal and collier but maybe he doesn't quite do everything still he's still focusing on being heel key but i feel like he hit a really nice kind of middle ground um i thought he also that a crucifix spot i loved he tries to crucifix joe and he has he's on his shoulders trying to pull him down but he can't get him down so instead while he's on his shoulders he kicks joe in the head which i thought was like a really cool spot to like throw a kick while you're on his shoulders um and, and i i just thought like i thought everyone was great in this match and that's part of why this match was great is like every combination of wrestlers is really good but in some ways, I felt like Key was a star. I uh, Key, you know, he sells. He's not afraid to sell against guys. But I felt like he had. I've never seen Key sell so big as I saw him sell for Liger. Like he was putting over everything Liger did. Huge, especially those palm uh, strikes. <laughs> yeah, and you know, he he was really again doing more old school healing than you would think of. From like he does the mocking Liger pose, like as a heel, and. um uh, and, and Danielson, I just want to single him out, is both nights, he just has the biggest smile on his face during so much of these matches. Like, you can tell he's just having the time of his life this weekend wrestling, um, you know, Liger in front of these crowds. Um, I, think, Pelosi, I think he also relishes being a heel. <laughs> yeah, and you, I think this is another stage of Danielson's development where he's really getting comfortable because – He's now getting to a point where he's not afraid to be goofy in the match, even in a serious match. Like he makes it all work where I feel like maybe a younger Danielson would just be more straight serious. Like, like that you, you described it where he does the airplane spin and then he does the Finley roll, but he's so dizzy that he spikes his own head and then he, he doesn't know where to go. So he stumbles into Joe's corner. Like that's very goofy, but that's still great. And, and it's like this version of Danielson, which I love. He's a little, little goofier, a little less grr every second, which I love that Danielson too. I might love that Danielson more even, but this is a great Danielson too. And I, I even love like we talked about on the the single Liger, the match he had with Liger the night before, where he was had a Liger in some hold and illegal, and the ref was telling, oh, he was trying to take Liger's mask off, and the ref was telling him like, don't do it. And we were talking about how great it was that Danielson was like, what? You want me to take his mask off? And, and I love here, he had a few other moments like that where he he had moments where he was just reacting like when the ref was talking to him, like, what are you talking about? Like, what am I doing wrong? Like, I don't I don't even understand what you're telling me. Like, like he's like he's very much now in an oblivious heel, like just like, I don't even know 
I don't even understand what you're saying to me, sir. I don't, what am I doing wrong? I don't get it. And I thought that was always cute. Um, yeah, just, a um, very good match. I wouldn't quite say great, but better than the night before. And just really fun and kind of like in a weird way, heartwarming because it's just nice to see a guy like Liger get to come in and like, it's a match where I felt like everybody got what they wanted. And that's nice to see. Agreed, except I would say great. But other than that, I agree with pretty much everything you said. Yeah, and, and really good. Um, so after the match, Liger and Joe briefly celebrate, and then they go to the back. Key returns to, returns to the ring where Danielson is still recovering. The two proceed to get into an argument about Danielson because he accidentally hit Key with the roaring elbow while um, Key was holding Liger for the move, and then... He ducked out, Liger ducked out of the way. Uh, they get into an argument. The Pitbulls all of a sudden attack Danielson from behind, and Joe and Liger immediately return to run off, like, no time wasted. Like, within one second, they're back out through behind the curtain. Um, except Smokes is left caught in the ring as everyone else escapes. Smokes takes a shot, a palm strike from Liger, and as the Pitbulls have a tantrum outside the ring with a pile of discarded streamers, Danielson eventually gets up, shakes Joe and Liger's hands, and the three simultaneously do the Liger pose on different turnbuckles as Liger's theme plays, and then all three raise each other's hands. So again, I thought kind of like a heartwarming, very happy kind of super babyface ending to this. Such a classic way to do that, too. Like, with Danielson being the temporary heel, and they just want to make sure everyone knows he's still a babyface, everybody. He gets the um, gets the stamp of approval from the other babyfaces, and they all celebrate together being cool dudes. Yeah, this was like a like again like a WWF eighties. I was thinking with the abdominal stretch stuff, but even like that that that's a very much booking of in a good way of like the heel at the end of the night gets into a fight with his heel friend, so he turns and then he like celebrates and po- does like a pose down with his new baby face friends. Like it's a very kind of classic kind of something of my childhood type thing, you know. But um, we go backstage to Sugar Sean Price who thought the main event was off the chain. And he's here to make a second attempt at getting a statement from the embassy. They're still mad. Rave's jaw is still hurt. Rave keeps holding his jaw. Nana yells at Angel Williams to get Rave some ice. Nana says Jay Lethal made a serious mistake tonight putting his hands on him. And he says that Ghana has declared war on Jay Lethal and Ring of Honor. He says there's now a contract out on Jay Lethal and will be fulfilled by the Outcast Killers. And then maybe Jay will have the chance to get a rematch with the guy who just beat him, who is on a winning streak, who is Jimmy Rave. Nana is mad and says that Jay has, quote, changed the storyline, unquote. So we got a new little program there. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that promo. Well, I do like that um, Nana goes to Jimmy Rave. Oh, no, excuse me, to, to Jay Lethal. Is it after he beats the Outcast Killers, then you will have the chance or maybe even the opportunity to step back in the ring with Jimmy Rave. <laughs> so, uh, okay, the chance or the opportunity. Hmm. Which one would I it's, rather have? It's funny because usually like heels, they will, they'll, they'll be like, oh, you, you know, my heel beat your guy and beat you and he's, he, he, you don't deserve a rematch. You, you, you know, you play the scared guy where he's like, he's never going to wrestle you again. Where this one, like, not as like, maybe if you beat the outcast killers, you can wrestle Jimmy Ray, who you want to wrestle again. Like, it's like, he's being almost too gracious. Yes. He's like, maybe uh, you can have this. But I think my favorite part of the promo is at the end when Sean Price pretends that he has an earpiece. 
And he's like, <laughs> what? We have Brian Danielson in his locker room? Let's go to Brian Danielson. Not since the Jimmy Jerry Lawler like phantom chain that he pulls out of his trunks in 80s Memphis have we seen such prop work. Oh, <laughs> I, lo- I love it. Fake parties, fake earpieces, <laughs> fake press conferences. It's just like that's wrestling. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And um, finally, to end the show, we cut to Brian Danielson in his locker room. Danielson says all his matches have been about his love for wrestling. But after what the Rottweilers did to him tonight – it's not about the wrestling. It's about his hatred for them. And we're going to get to see a new Brian Danielson starting now. So very short promo. I, I don't know if like as bad – like yes, the Rottweilers attacked him. But like Danielson was acting like this was the most serious thing ever. And I don't know if we see a new Danielson as much as we see – New Danielson facial hair, maybe? No, uh, honestly, uh, honestly, you, we do see a new Danielson. Like, I don't know if it's on the very next show, but like, he does change a bit after this match. Like, you do start to, and it actually makes sense. I mean, you're right. Like, that, that, like, the fact that he hates them, like, in the grand scheme of wrestling beat towns, what he went through was literally nothing. Um, yeah. But it is true that before this, he never really had a feud. Yeah. Like, he had, or he got a, a couple little rivalries. Um, but he never had a feud until now in ROH, so that's interesting. But no, I think you're going to see over the next few months he does become a lot more aggressive and stuff. So I um I don't know how long it lasts, but it happens, and the and, facial hair is part of it. And credit to Ring of Honor for shooting a big angle at the end of a show that they knew a lot of people were going to be watching. Like that's booking 101, but they still did it. You know, th- this that angle sets up basically the next few months of brian danielson and homicide that keeps them busy for quite a while yeah clearly homicide would have been more involved in that ending beatdown if he was able to be that's yeah my assumption based on the fact that they're the two that are going to have the match next show and the big series of matches yeah yeah i agree um mike johnson had some notes and then we'll get our overall thoughts Johnson notes that Jushin Liger signed for about a hundred fans after the show. So I don't know if that's more or less than I would expect. Uh, probably less when 1200 show up. I would get a, I don't know if he was charging, but I would get an autograph from Liger and I don't even get autographs. Mick Foley had an autograph from Liger. So, Hey, um, Johnson wrote as one can probably guess, I really loved the show. In fact, I think this was probably one of the top three shows the promotion has put together. The only downsides were the tag title match, which I don't fault anyone for, and the unfortunate injury to Homicide. Beyond that, all the angles clicked, the work was good, and the crowd got to see what they wanted to see, a dream match main event with four exceptional wrestlers. One can't ask for a better night than last night when it comes to a live product. Matt, do you think this show was one of the three best Ring of Honor shows we've seen? (sighs) No, I think it was one of the weaker shows, actually, that we've watched recently. Um... But I can't say it was bad. Like it was, you know, it had a, I really liked the punk angle and how they set that match up. I really loved the main event. So, and especially if you watch that main event, you're going to be happy. You're going to have a smile on your face. So I recommend that. I, I didn't think the show was very good beyond that though. Honestly, there was some, there was some fun stuff, but I think, you know, considering the great run of shows we've been watching over the past few months, this show falls at or near the bottom at least um until the main event which the main event probably puts it above some other shows but not not that great 
Well, 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 you know, our old pod father, old Chad Campbell, he always says, oh, makes fun of me in private chats after these shows go up where he goes, oh, Trevor Grumpy, Trevor said this was just good. And Trevor always underrates stuff. Well, guess what? I thought this was a very good show. I thought it was much better than you did, Matt. Um, I think we, the show has showed why, because I liked the, uh, the no DQ match quite a lot more than you. I liked the rave, um, lethal match more than you but at the same time i completely get your criticisms i think you know especially when you consider the last three matches one of them wasn't looking to be very good and then had a terrifying end and then the other one the semi-main event was just like three stars in front of a largely disinterested crowd like in that sense and then on top of that you got a disappointing nigel collier match like there are a bunch of lows on the show, but then I think back to the four way was one of the most fun spot fest ring of honors done recently. I really liked the lethal J match for the eight minutes that it was the lethal uh, rave match for the eight minutes it had. I thought that as a spectacle, the hardcore match was great. You have the fun punk Joe, I mean, punk Foley stuff that goes on for quite a bit. Main event was really just a crowd pleasing match. So, it's weird. This was just, this was like a real, the best of times, worst of times kind of show. I felt like, but for me, the best of times outweighed the worst of times because there was some real disappointing stuff and some really good stuff. But that ends the show. Going into plugs, if you want to contact us, that is through the years at gmail.com. T-H-R-O-H for through is the spelling. We have a for, we have a thread on the Pro Wrestling Only Plugs Forum. Uh, if you want to contact us on Twitter, I am at Trevor Dame. Dame is spelled D-A-M as in Mother E. Don't make the mistakes that my uh, doctors prescribing medication have recently. Uh, Matt is at Mayor M-G-F. And, uh, yeah, that's the show. Next time we will be coming to you whenever we get around to it with a huge show, literally and figuratively, All-Star Extravaganza 2. That is a double disc show that has Joe versus Punk 3, the trilogy ends, plus the first ever in pro wrestling confrontation between Jim Cornette and Bobby Heenan, arguably two of the greatest managers of all time. Huge show, Matt. We plus, got plus, plus low-key against Austin Aries in a mask match. But the weird part is this is like a reverse mask match because the loser actually has to put on a mask. Um, <laughs> um, but but honestly, I, I, on paper, All-Star Extravaganza 3 is the biggest show in ROH history up to this point. Like I'm not saying in terms of like business success or attention or anything like that, but like in terms of like what is being offered there, like low-key versus – Aries, Homicide versus Danielson, Jim Cornette and Bobby Heenan, plus a, a pretty big tag match associated with those two guys. Plus, of course, probably the most anticipated ROH world title match ever up to this point in Joe vs. Punk 3. Uh, yeah, I'd say it's the biggest ROH show ever up until this point. And it's not reflected in the final attendance, but I think uh, I'll have to make double check, but it'll be in the notes for the next episode. I think when they announced that like the next show would be Cornette and Heenan, and then, you know, you're going to get in Joe Punk, that they said that broke the ticket advanced ticket sales from the night they announced that Liger would be coming. So clearly yeah. to the fans in the building, it was like the biggest show ever. It was like, we have to go immediately buy tickets to the next show. Well, you got to do that when like you're running the same building two shows in a row. Also, yeah. 
Also, this is, I think, the the most time ROH has taken off between shows since the Feinstein scandal. Yeah, it's a double shot, and then it's it's like a month now to the next show. Yeah. So, yeah, that'll be a blast. Hopefully a, a big show that'll be. And, uh, yeah, thank, thanks, everybody, from listening. Uh, from listening, I am losing my voice, losing my mind. Um, until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.